Good morning, brothers. Y'all can hear me okay? Yes. Great. Um, Paul Barton, do you want to open us in a word of prayer? God, let's pray. Father God, we thankful for this opportunity to gather this morning. We appreciate that um, our brother Jonathan has got up very early and worked hard and is dedicated. We thank you for the gifts that you've given to him. We pray, Lord, as he teaches us, as we open up your word, that we may see um, the truth of your word. May we see how it applies to our own individual lives, how we can apply it pastorally to our church families and how we can carry this righteousness and justice into the world to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Um, yeah, the, fir the first morning I started teaching at 5 a.m., you know, there's like some adrenaline going. Second morning, you're like, okay. The thing is, of course, all my evening routines here with wife and kids stay the same. So it's not like I'm going to bed a lot earlier. So it's like third morning, you're like, oh, okay, we'll get through this. Anyhow, that's that's my little pity story. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about justice. What is justice in the Bible? And this is just sort of a Yesterday, we, we, we spent most of the day thinking about what is government, and uh, somewhere along the way, I said the government's main job is to seek justice. By justice, the king builds up the land, Proverbs 29.4, and, and um, the people were amazed that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice. And, and we looked at and the very heart of that justice. <clears throat> is articulated in the Noahic Covenant. That's where, that's where human beings are authorized to render judgment, right? And do justice, I said. That's the start of all. Genesis 9, 5, and 6, you might say, is your great commission text for government. So if, if Matthew 28, <clears throat> 19, and 20 gives us our Mission as a church, Genesis 9, 5, and 6 gives us the mission of government, um, and, and that is to do justice. And, um, and uh, justice, of course, as you know, is a contested concept these days, especially among evangelicals. There's lots of calls for caring more about justice. Um, one side uses of Christians, evangelical Christians, uh, use their conferences and social media platforms to argue that social justice is a gospel issue or an implication of the gospel, and ignoring it amounts to a distortion of the gospel like any other form of antinomianism. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the other side uses their platforms to call social justice a new form of legalism at best, a form of neo-Marxism at worst. And the whole conversation is characterized by the innuendo of excommunication. Voices on both sides implying, how can you be a Christian if you don't agree with me? And I don't think we'll get anywhere in the conversation about social justice until we step back and ask, what is, what is justice in the Bible? So that's what we're going to think about. I have, I have a number of points. Um, 
11, 11 points. <clears throat> and uh, I don't have an inconvenient form to cut and paste into the chat for you, but I'll be, I'll be very clear on them so you can write them down. Number one, why care about justice? Answer, because God is a God of justice. Why care about justice? It's because God is a God of justice. Uh, <clears throat> scripture teaches that God has established his throne for justice. Psalm 9-7, write that down. God has established his throne for justice. It says that he, write this down, Jeremiah 9-24, he practices and delights in justice. Jeremiah 9-24, he practices and delights in justice. Uh, it, it says, write this down, Zephaniah 3.5, <clears throat> every morning he shows forth his justice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Here's another text, Psalm 89.14. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of your throne. What's the foundation of God's throne? Justice and righteousness. doesn't say liberty and prosperity are the foundation of his throne. It says justice and righteousness are. Uh, Isaiah 5.16. Isaiah 5.16 says he is exalted. Oh, where did I just lost it? Exalted in justice and shows himself holy in righteousness. Exalted in justice and shows himself holy in righteousness. Again, notice it doesn't say the Lord is ex exalted in free markets and shows himself holy in maximizing happiness. Doesn't say that. Justice and righteousness. God is a God of justice. He delights in it. It's a desire of his heart. It's the foundation of his throne. This is true of God. Should it not also be true of those who worship and image God? Okay, so why does God care about justice? Because he's a God of justice. Number two, what is justice in our culture? People often use the word with an adjective, as with social and the phrase social justice. And that can prove bewildering to people, but I don't think it needs to. Each, each act, adjective has a different domain in mind. For instance, political philosophers and economists concern themselves with distributive justice. And all that is to say, what does justice require for the distribution or redistribution of goods and services in a nation? Okay. Uh, sometimes these same political philosophers and political scientists will talk about procedural justice and whether or not a society's mechanisms for making this decision, the rules of the game, the, the, the procedures, are they themselves fair? Right. Uh, meanwhile, lawyers, judges, jurists will talk about retributive justice. <clears throat> what constitutes fair and proportional punishments when crimes have occurred? So just all of these are, the, the, the adjective is just helping us to see what justice is requiring in a different domain. The economy, the courtroom, Right. Uh, laws, laws of the laws of the land, or, or, or the rules about making rules, 
That's procedural justice. Social justice is perhaps the vaguest term of all. It means different things to different people. I mean, after all, isn't all justice finally social? In some sense, that phrase, social justice, I find redundant. Of course it's social. What, 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 what is it if it's not social? Uh, but typically, people use the term to refer to justice as it plays out in society at large amidst all the overlapping structures of law, and language, and tradition, and various social groupings, and so forth. So, so they particularly have in mind structural realities when they talk about social justice. What are the structural requirements of justice? So just not like you and me personally in our relationship with each other, but the, but the laws that would govern you and me that are established across society at large. Yet each of these overlapping conversations, distributive justice, retributive justice, procedural justice, social justice, they all assume the existence of more, more basic and foundational concept of justice. What, what is that? Well, I think the Roman jurist Ulpian's definition is popular and it's somewhat intuitive. Justice is giving someone his or her due, right? You've heard that. Justice is giving someone his or her due. And I think that's a decent starting point for getting our, our brains in the right vicinity. Yeah, what it leaves unanswered is what, what, what is it that makes something due or deserved? Um, in our secular age, one of you brothers asked this question, I think it was yesterday. What about rights? What, is, what, do, what do rights have to do with it? In our secular age, we, we would just say justice equals rights. Justice equals rights. Our rights are due us, I'd say. But that's really actually just a very clever way of saying that justice must bend every individual and group's will insofar as it can without transgressing someone else's. So if a woman decides to marry a woman, justice demands it. If a teenage girl decides the thing in her womb is not a human and can be discarded, justice demands it. If a five-year-old boy decides he's a girl, justice demands it. The schools require other students to treat him accordingly. All these are my rights. My rights based on what? Well, based on the fact that I want them, really. When man is God, the human being's demand is the only conceivable source of justice and its requirements. Furthermore, there is no rational and just response to such demands other than that violates my rights, leaving courts and Twitter to adjudicate which claims feel stronger. We've devolved to pure emotivism, to borrow a term from Alistair McIntyre. Other than that, there is no moral vocabulary left in our public square. That is our moral vocabulary. Those are my rights. Where do you get those? I just know that's who I am deep in my heart. I've always been that way. Well, yeah, well, yeah but, I, but, but, but I have a right to worship the God I, I, who I want to worship. <clears throat> well, okay, which, which one feels more compelling, say the court, say social media? Well, that one feels more compelling to me. It, it, it goes to who you are, whereas your worship, you choose. 
and uh, so we're we're going to side with 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 people who feel deep in the heart that they were born this way. There's no other moral language, nothing else you can appeal to. At that point, in the public square. Number three, how does the Bible define justice? How does the Bible define justice? The word justice first occurs in the Bible when God says that he chose Abraham and his descendants to be, a, this is Genesis 18, 19, Genesis 18, 19, uh, chose Abraham and his descendants to be a blessing to the nations by keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And in fact, almost half of the 125 times the word justice appears in the Old Testament in, in the English translation that's translated as rules and you know, a number of times as well, the, the, the basic word mishpat. But that in your English translation, you see that 125 times, or at least if you use the ESV, where justice appears, you'll see the word righteousness is right next to it. Um, justice and righteousness, they're, they're, a pa they're paired together. And the, the lesson of that, I think, is that biblical justice must always be measured according to the standards of God's righteousness. Biblical justice must always be measured according to the standards of God's righteousness. Justice and righteousness begin with God's, uh, God's own character. God's law, which expresses his character, makes rights right. Do, do. Fair, fair. Got it? With me? Justice must be measured according to his righteousness. It makes rights right, do, do, fair, fair. What we Westerners call our rights, then, are right only where and when God says they are right. A second lesson we can take from this coupling of justice and righteousness the broader use of justice in the Bible, is that it's interchangeable with the word English word judgment. Word justice is interchangeable, as you'll see it translated, with the word judgment. Justice is the noun form of the verb to judge. So justice in the Bible, first and foremost, is an activity, and it's an activity of judging or applying a judgment. Justice in the Bible, first and foremost, is an activity of judging and or applying a judgment. So putting these first two lessons together, we can define justice in the Bible as <clears throat> rendering judgment. We'll write down a definition. Rendering judgment according to God's standards of righteousness. Rendering judgment according to God's standards of righteousness, or if, if you want to do in just two words, righteous judgment. What is justice in the Bible? Righteous judgment. He has established his throne in righteous judgment. He delights in righteous judgment. So notice there's a standard. That's the right. That's the rules, the, you know, the measuring stick. His righteousness, his law. And then there's the activity of applying that standard or rendering judgment by that standard. That's doing justice. Okay? So think of Israel's response when Solomon discerned that 
which of the two prostitutes was telling the truth about her baby and, and that verse I've been saying to you over and over, Israel stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice, 1 Kings 3.28. They perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice, to render righteous judgment. He rendered the judgment, that was righteous, he did justice. And you can almost substitute the words righteous judgments with every occurrence of justice in the Bible. The Lord is a God of justice. That is to say, the Lord is a God of righteous judgment. Or by justice, the king builds up the land. We, we could say by righteous judgment, a king builds up the land. Okay, so that's point three. What is justice in the Bible? It's righteous judgment. It's rendering judgment according to God's standards of righteousness. Okay, number four, what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to do justice? The short answer is to apply judgment, apply righteous judgment. But what's crucial here is to recognize the difference, the significance of context for doing justice or applying judgment. So justice does different things in different contexts. Write that down. Justice does different things in different contexts. So in the courtroom, justice doesn't show partiality or accept bribes. Deuteronomy 16, 19, and 20. Deuteronomy 16, 19, and 20. Exodus 23, 2, and 6. Exodus 23, 2, and 6. Lamentations 3, 35 and 36. Okay, so in the courtroom, justice doesn't show partiality or accept bribes. Uh, in the marketplace, justice insists on just balance and scales. Proverbs 16, 11. Proverbs 16, 11. In the marketplace, justice insists on just balances and scales. In God's economy of redemption, justice, get this, can even redeem Isaiah 127 reads, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness, <laughs> Isaiah 127. And so through many of the different contexts we might list. So justice does different things in different contexts. And it's on this third question that good Christians sometimes argue with one another particularly when it comes to the relationship between justice and mercy or justice and generosity. So one side, the more conservative, politically conservative side, at least where I live, will say things like, well, you know, justice is justice, mercy and mercy and generosity is generosity. They're not, they're not the same things, and those who confuse them are just making lexical fallacies. You'll, you'll read that in something like Greg Gilbert and Kevin D. Young's book on the mission of the church. But justice is not generosity. Different things. Whereas other, uh, other Christians like Tim Keller will point to passages like Psalm 112, verse 5, and say, well, in fact, justice requires generosity. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. So no, no, notice the, the parallelism. In Psalm 112, verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously in limbs, who conducts his affairs with justice. This, the second line seems to be acting in parallel to and explaining the first line, says the second group. 
You know, just even think of the title of, of Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. What? Aren't, aren't those different things? Well, justice, would say Tim, is requiring generosity. At times it does, depending on the domain. Or, or consider how Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for neglecting the, the quote, Matthew 23, 23, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So do we side with the first group that mercy means mercy and justice means justice, period? Or do we side with the second group that doing justice may well involve showing mercy? Now, for my part, it's not clear to me that we can make a hard exegetical case one way or the other, at least on, at least on this second example. It, it, Psalm 112 verse 5 does sound like parallelism. I, th I think that is a, a reasonable argument. But what's missing from the conversation as a whole is a distinction, I think, between what the word means and what a word does or requires. Uh, think, think about the word kind, English word kind, K-I-N-D. Well, the word kind means, I look it up in a dictionary, of a sympathetic, beneficent, and helpful nature. A sympathetic, beneficent, or helpful nature. It doesn't mean giving money to a needy person. The kindness of a sympathetic, beneficent, or helpful nature might cause you to give to a needy person. Then again, it might cause you to withhold the money, as when you know it'll be spent supporting a drug addiction. In short, there's a, there's a difference between what the word kindness means and what it does or requires. And context is crucial for ascertaining what it does or requires. Likewise, justice means righteous judgment or administering, administrating righteousness. And generosity and mercy mean something else, period. I think that's just plain. But that doesn't limit our ability to say that justice might require an action that would otherwise be construed as generous or merciful. So the Good Samaritan acted generously in one sense, yes. But is there no sense in which we might also not say that he acted justly? That his action of correcting an injustice was, again, generous of him, but also a kind of justice. Uh, let me give you a little mathematical equation. Justice defined plus context equals what justice does or requires. Justice defined, righteous judgment, plus context equals what justice does or requires. And what's hard to miss in scripture is how often justice involves defending the needy and lifting up the downcast. I'll give you some text. Just write down these texts. You can listen as I read them. Psalm 82.3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Isaiah 117, 
seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah 5.28. They know no bounds of in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Okay, so to sum up, the word justice means righteous judgment, yet doing justice very often means upholding the cause of the needy. Do you hear that word used over and over in those, those verses I read? means upholding the cause of the needy, the afflicted, the fatherless, the weak. And in general, my sense is that people on the political right emphasize justice as putting down wrongdoers, while those on the political left emphasize it as lifting up the wronged. What is your instinct for justice? Is it putting down wrongdoers, or is it lifting up the wrong? Well, the Bible emphasizes both. They are the two sides of the same coin, after all. Psalm 72 is glorious on this score. Uh, he gives us the description, of the description of the perfectly just king, this messianic king. Or what does it say about him? May he judge your people, verse 1, may he, or 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he Defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. How does he judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice? Well, he defends the cause of the poor, gives deliverance to the needy, he lifts up, but then he also pushes down, crushes the oppressor. Okay? Okay, number five. Or, you know what? Let, let me let me. I've, I've been talking straight for 20, 25 minutes. Let me see if there's any questions. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, one question of clarity. So you, you just said people on the right emphasize putting down wrongdoers, while the left emphasizes lifting up the wrong. Is that what you said? Lifting up the wrong. Uh, <laughs> if I, that's what I said. Sorry. Uh, 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 to, at least in, in, in my, neck, my, my neck of the woods. Uh, the political right emphasizing putting down, punishing wrongdoers, right? right? We're, we're, we're crime and punishment conservatives or lifting up the down, whereas friends are, my friends on the political, Christian friends on the political left tend to emphasize lifting up the downcast, the needy, caring for the poor, so forth. Great, thank you. And you just quoted uh, a psalm. I thought you said 117. That isn't the psalm. Which psalm was it? Mm. I quoted a bunch of psalms. Was it 112 verse 5? The, the last one that you were um, emphasizing both the justice and the... Oh, the psalm 72. Psalm 72. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, this is it's a question related to the subject, uh, but we now probably in the last few years, we have seen a lot more discuss on what justice and social justice uh, means. Uh, the question is, why do you think we are having this particular emphasis or this discussion on justice now and not 60 years ago? 
why why now everyone is talking about justice what has happened in the in the culture what what the causes of of it so that people may start talking about something uh that previously people didn't talk too much about it yeah that's a that's a great question uh i i can only speculate i i, I trust if we we could probably camp here for half an hour and, and sorry the, the, the question is because i think when when you try to find a solution to something, you start trying to find the causes uh, of it, the historical causes. Uh, so that's what my question related to start thinking on the subject of justice and giving answer to the particular context in which we are. Uh, it will be good to look at the causes of it. And, and that's why, that's why my question. Yeah, uh, my, my sense, my limited sense from where I sit and what, what I see on the, political horizon in my country is, and it's, it's also in, in your country too, I, both of our countries, I, is the growth in identitarian politics, the growth in identity politics. And uh, that for the last several decades has been the name of the game, you know, from, from the civil rights movement and feminist movement to more critical theory-driven versions of those things. Um, identity politics has become the religion of the moment, right? And in some ways, the, the, the religion of the elite and the masses. And identity politics is very much driven by a certain conception of justice that in some ways has attractive elements to those with a biblical worldview, such as lifting up the downcast, right? I just read you a bunch of texts about the oppressed and the oppressor and identity politics comes along and says, hey, yeah, let, let's talk about the oppressed. That, that's, it's all about the oppressed. Everybody's an, either oppressed or oppressor. And there are elements inside of a biblical worldview that kind of hears that. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. I see that in my Bible too. Let's talk about that. But then you have other elements in a biblical reads. No, 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 no. That's you're, you're you're creating a new religion, and and so I think the movement of culture to talk about justice through the lens of an identity politics um, leaves Christians wanting to respond one way or the other. So yeah, it becomes a dramatically it becomes a, a, a central part of our conversation. That that, that would be one guess. And just all the attention media gives to questions of racism and questions of the Me Too movement and so forth, we, you know, we, we can't help but talk about it um, in response to those sorts of things. I bet if we, again, if I bet if we surveyed this classroom, we'd, we'd probably get a number of other explanations. That's the best I can do off the top of my head. Um, number five. And this, this one's important, guys. You, you got to get this one. And it's going to sound a little wonky at first, but I, again, I think it's crucial. Five, justice in Scripture must be understood covenantally. Justice in Scripture must be understood covenantally. In addition to, uh, no, no, remember back in point three or four, I said that you got to pay attention to context. <laughs> Well, even more specifically, we need to pay attention to the context of covenantal location. 
So it's not enough to say that judge justice must always be measured according to the standards of God's righteousness. That's too, that's too broad and undefined. The standards of God's righteousness must be covenantally specified, articulated, explained. Okay. So remember what I said, justice means it's got to be measured by standards of God's righteousness, but the standards of God's righteousness must be covenantally specified, articulated, explained. So an analogy for me to do justice or for me to do right and act justly within my marriage means paying attention to the specific terms of the marital covenant. For me to do right and act justly within the context of my mortgage means observing the specific terms of the bank loan. So doing justice in my marriage is defined by that covenant. Doing justice with my mortgage means doing it according to the terms of the bank loan. So God doesn't leave us to guess what his righteous requirements are. He lovingly specifies them for us through the covenants given in Scripture. And it's these covenants which define the terms. They give us the fine print of justice and righteousness. So if justice is administering righteousness and rendering judgment according to the standards of righteousness, well, what's righteousness? Well, look at the covenant. What covenant are you, are you talking about the Mosaic covenant? Talk about the new covenant? Talk about the Noahic covenant. <clears throat> okay, he defines his relationship with humanity in common. Think back to our conversation yesterday. I said there's two kinds of covenants. You have the common covenants with Adam and Noah, and you have the special covenants, I said, with, with um, Abraham, Israel, David, and then Christ. He defines his relationship and justice with humanity in covenant through the covenants given to Adam and Noah. These are the common covenants, and he defines his relation as a special people, again, through Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ. What's more, God establishes various institutions to uphold and regulate these different covenants. I actually think I mentioned this briefly yesterday. Um, the institutions of family and state regulate elements of the common covenants. Institutions of family and state regulate elements of common covenants. Meanwhile, Abrahamic institutions like circumcision, Mosaic institutions like the Sabbath or the priesthood, Davidic institutions like the kingship, regulate elements of those respective special covenants. You see? So all these, all these different covenants. Remember what, the whole thing, the whole enterprise I said on the first day, I think, was we're, we're, we're trying to read the Bible institutionally. Read the inst Bible institutionally means paying attention to its covenants. Okay, each of these covenants have certain institutions which regulate the living out of those covenants. Today, the local church and its officers upholds and regulate elements of the new covenant. The local church and its officers uphold and regulate elements of the new covenant. Through baptism of the Lord's Supper, for instance, these churches publicly declare who belongs to the new covenant, who's a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Okay, let me, let me give you another one of those. <clears throat> Actually, I'll put it to you on the screen. You can see it. You know, just, justice defined plus common covenants equals the justice work of families and states 
justice defined by justice defined, I just mean the definition of the word, rendering righteous judgment, plus special covenants equals the justice pursuing work of priesthood, kingship, church, etc. All right. Now, if Christians want to debate the obligations and applications of justice, in other words, they need to pay better attention to which covenant they're appealing to, as to well as to which specific institutions they believe are responsible. So, hey, Christians, let's talk about justice, grace. Okay, fine. But what, what, what covenant are you appealing to and what, what institutions they believe are responsible? So I was, I was on this podcast not long ago, a video cast. Um, and the hosts, these three Presbyterian guys, um, and they're, they're kind of theonomists. They said to me, Jonathan, do you think we should exercise capital punishment for bestiality? You know, based on, you know, I don't know, numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, some, some, something. I, I, I confess I don't have my bestiality capital punishment texts memorized. <laughs> and I was just like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> is this a pressing pastoral problem for you? <laughs> like, and, uh, but th th this guy asking me the question was convinced that we should. And uh, honestly, it caught me off guard and I, was kind of slow in processing. And I was, so I, I was in my mind at that moment trying to process it through the Noahic grid. And I was trying to do the math, like, okay, whoever says about my ministry is there, is there any sense in which bestiality? Like, I recognize under the Mosaic covenant, but I understand the Mosaic covenant to be directly binding on us. So that's not a question of my mind. So I'm trying to process it through the Noahic covenant. Is there any sense that one could somehow get to the conclusion that bestiality is required? And so that meant kind of on camera, as it were, I'm, I'm kind of stalling and thinking it through. And they're like, who is this idiot? It's just obvious here. It is the Bible. Um, and, and then another guy did a podcast saying, you know, Jonathan Lehman's an idiot. How, how come he didn't? <laughs> he studied political philosophy. He doesn't know his answer to that question. It's just like, well, that's an absurd question. Nobody's, a, nobody's put it to me before. And B, I'm, I'm using a different grid than you guys. Right, they 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 were using the entire old covenant and trying to apply it to the church, and I just don't think that's right. I don't think they understand justice covenantally. That's my point of my illustration here. They 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 they, they have a wrong understanding of the covenants or the, the continuity between the covenants. Let me put it that way. And therefore, for them, it's just a quick and easy, well, the old covenant's still in effect. We should apply it. We should enforce it. Therefore, bestiality should be applied. And I'm just like, no. Anyhow. Uh, There we go. Sorry about that. Um, let's see. Is uh, is Damiano here? Ah, oh, there you are. Yes, hey Damiano, you sent me an email. Um, 
the grounding of our understanding of government, what it is, what it's not meant to do, is based on our understanding of God's design for government. And yes, but in our countries, the majority of people hold to a form of religion which leads to another ideal form of government. Yes, they do. And always have and always will do. As Christians, how can we stand for religious tolerance and at the same time trying to impose our view of government? As a citizen, I would fight to promote my view of government, but aware that this in certain ways tries to suppress the belief of other people, just as they do to us. So the ideal of religious tolerance, I find hypocritical and inconsistent. You're calling me a hypocrite, are you? Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about the ideals. <laughs> I understand. I got it. Um, I find instead the situation you depicted at the beginning of these lectures, where this, the nations are square, where each one is fight, a battleground of gods. Um, that's what it seems like to you, I guess you're saying, yeah. This is the observation I was thanks for picking up. Um, yeah, uh, it's recognizing the significance, the, the key here is recognizing the significance of, of jurisdictional authority, okay? And yes, I do very much mean to impose what God has authorized me or the state to impose on others. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. I'm going to impose that. I don't care if you believe it's right or wrong. I'm going to stand before God one day and give an account for whether or not I participated in voting for a government that was against murder, that was against stealing, that was against, you know, those kinds of things. Now, it just so happens that don't murder, don't steal overlaps with a lot of other gods and a lot of other religions. So it, we tend not to have to contest those issues. Nonetheless, I'm not, I'm not there looking for common ground per se. I, I'm there to say, hey, God says this is just, this is right. I'm going to impose it. So your question is, okay, well, Jonathan, what's all this talk about religious tolerance? Well, my God also limits the jurisdiction. The fact this is about where we're going to go. This is a good transition to the next point. He limits what you and I as believers think we can impose to the sword. He doesn't authorize us to say, you have to agree that Jesus is king. He, he doesn't authorize us to act like Charlemagne and put a sword to the neck and say, convert from your pagan ways. You know, he, he doesn't authorize us to put a sword to the neck and say, you know, acknowledge, <clears throat> acknowledge Allah as, as God the one and only God, and Muhammad is his prophet. He doesn't authorize us to do that. I have to tolerate instead your belief in Allah, your belief in Hare Krishna, your belief in nothing, right? So the tolerance doesn't get applied to everything. It, get, it gets applied to everything outside of the jurisdiction God gives to government, namely what do we believe and, and who is a believer? Does that make sense? So it's not yes. unlimited tolerance. It's tolerance outside of the jurisdiction given to government. Yeah, the, at the same time, like on the other side, they will say to us, well, no, you are, you are uh, like they don't recognize these boundaries in which we try to impose. No, of course not. No, they don't. 
So, so like what in our eyes is religious tolerance for others is not. So we have our own. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not responsible to what they think. I'm responsible to God. Yeah. 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 So, so there's, true. in other words, so there's, there's not a hypocrisy there. It's like I'm acting consistently with what the Bible teaches me. Now, in this sense, let me let me let me say one more thing here. And I forget if I get to this later in the lectures. I'll go ahead and say it now in case I don't. There's a sense in which Christians, when they're talking about political engagement, and I think this is important, Christians need to have two conversations. First, we have a hallway by ourselves conversation. Like, what do we believe about government? What should we what should we say about these laws? We have a private hallway conversation in which we look to the Bible to govern and define what we think we want to do when we step into the, into the public square. So conversation one, private hallway conversation. Conversation two, we step into the public square or we step into the negotiating room with all of our non-Christian friends and neighbors, and we try to persuade them of what we thought back in our private hallway conversation is the right thing to do. Now, stepping into the second conversation with all of our non-Christian neighbors, pluralistic public square, what kind of arguments do we use there? Well, we use any arguments we can to, to persuade. We use common ground arguments, right? You agree with me that we want to protect the conscience, right? Okay, well, let's, let's protect one another's consciences. My conscience tells me Jesus is king. Your conscience tells you that you know, Allah is, is, is God or, or there is no God. Let's, let's, so I'm going to try to find common ground arguments in the public square to make the case. Does that make sense? So in that sense, I think Christians are called to be principled pragmatists. Principled, because we're taking our cues from the Bible. Pragmatists, because I recognize not everybody agrees with me on the Bible, and so I'm going to try to make whatever arguments I can to persuade you that this is the way of justice and righteousness. My only other option is to appeal to some non-biblical view, anti-God view of justice and righteousness. I can't do that as a Christian. So, do you want to follow up on that all? No, no. I think I think you you yeah. We we in practical we agree on everything. Just yeah. when I say I am a religious tolerant. Uh, like any other person will still accuse me because he will answer me well but you're not religious tolerant all the way into what religion will imply in reality i'm really no, tolerant and, and, until a certain no, point correct correct and so is everyone else definitely like the others that stand for religious tolerant are not tolerant at all and here's here's the deal here's what i would say about christianity christianity actually places limits on me and what I'll seek to oppose. T t t tell me, my non-Christian friend, what limits does your God impose on you? None. You have no reason from your secular perspective not to impose the entirety of your secular worldview on me. You even want to take my kids from me if I want to tell my son he's not a daughter. You seem to want to, want, want to impose it all the way down. You want to tell me that I, I, I can't, I can't, you know, bake a cake for who I want to bake a cake for. If, if I don't want to make a wedding cake for, for a lesbian wedding, you, you want to tell me I can't do that. There's nothing from your secular worldview that doesn't 
that, that keeps you from the imposed, nothing from your Muslim worldview, nothing from your Hindu worldview, nothing from your Confucian worldview, nothing from your communist atheistic worldview that keeps you from imposing the entirety of your religion on me. I, as the Christian, ironically, am the only one or one of the few whose God would place limits on me and what I would impose on you, right? So, yeah, it's a battleground of gods. And yeah, there are some impositions I want to make. You know what? I actually think I want to impose far less on you than you want to impose on me. And insofar as you don't want to impose everything, honestly, that's probably Christian, the fumes of a Christian worldview that are still in your gas tank. <clears throat> so, okay. That was a great question. Thank you very much to pick it up. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, where were we? We were on point... Back to my notes. We are on point six. Is there such a thing as a structural injustice? I, I would say, of course. Right? Uh, scripture says that not only can individuals be unjust, so can legal and social structures. What is a structure? A structure is a, a, it, it, it's a, it's a system of rules. That's all a structure is. So it's a, it's a rule system. Um, <clears throat> they could be formal, they could be informal. Formal, you know, laws on slavery, informal laws on, you know, who I'm going to hang out with and prefer to give mortgage loans to. No, nothing's written down. You know, think about how Haman convinced Ahasuerus to enact a genocidal campaign against the Jews in the Book of Esther. It was a systemic, structural injustice. Think about how Jesus condemned the lawyers for loading uh, if you will write down biblical text for these, uh, Esther seven, uh, Esther three, seven to fourteen. Esther three, seven to fourteen. Uh, Luke eleven forty six is another one. A uh, Luke eleven forty six. Jesus condemns the lawyers for loading burdens on people that are too hard for them to bear. These were these were structural of the laws of the rules injustices, too heavy for people to bear. Uh, Acts six, the preference shown to Hebrew speaking widows. And in the distribution of the food. It was a kind of structural, informal, not written down, structural injustice. Uh, partiality to the rich. It's a kind of structural, again, in, in, informal, injustice, James 2. Uh, listen to Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 10, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. Okay, so you have, you have a clear systemic injustice that Isaiah is, is writing against. Now, okay, truth in advertising. The way the phrase systemic injustice is used these days often goes beyond just this. The way the phrase systemic injustice is used these days also seems to incorporate a kind of uh, a, a Marxist conception of a false consciousness. That is to say, you know, just thinking, you know, traditional Marxist terms, you know, the bourgeoisie lives inside of a kind of consciousness. You can't necessarily pinpoint that keeps the proletariat down. Whites live inside of a kind of consciousness of white supremacy. 
even if they're not necessarily conscious of it. It's a false consciousness. It's a, it's a sense of, I am superior as a white to all my black friends. Well, well, Jonathan, I, what, what, you know, where's the rules? Where, where, where are the unjust, you know, laws? Well, it's, it's not just the laws. It's, it's kind of just this overall conceptuality, consciousness I live inside as a white man that is superior to um, uh, minorities, people of color, and um, that it then in turn affects everything I do. I can't get outside of it. I, I live inside of this false consciousness. That yeah, is, so even 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 when I'm even when I am uh, doing quote unquote nice things or or passing laws for civil rights, even then I'm only doing it because I pursue. I, I see that it somehow benefits me as a white man. Um, now, structural injustice, when used in that larger sense, that kind of amorphous, almost undefinable and certainly almost non-falsifiable respect, is that biblical? Well, let me let me let me put it to you like this: um, We're we're all fallen. We all live with ourselves at the center of the universe. We 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 all live with distorted and fallen worldviews. Yes, yes, yes. You know, it's not unreasonable for me to think that there are certain respects that maybe my very conception of what it means to be a man contains sinful elements in it, patriarchal, sexist elements in it that I'm not aware of. Suppose you, you go to Iran, you, you share the gospel, you know, this, this forget, Saudi Arabia, you go to Saudi Arabia, you share the gospel with somebody, a, a man, he, he becomes a Christian. My guess is at that moment that that Saudi Arabian kind of inculcated in years of, of Muslim sexism and patriarchy, even at the moment he becomes a Christian, he's going to still be living inside of a view of what it means to be a man or masculinity that is still sinful and needs to be reformed and discipled out of, right? That, that to me is easy to imagine. And it's, it's easy to imagine how all of us live inside of still suffused with sin perspectives on any number of things, lust, covetousness, pride, racism, partiality, sinful, let me just define it as James 2, sinful partiality. Yeah, that, that, that's not hard for me to imagine. Okay, but does that mean I then live in a permanent state of indictment towards people of a certain skin color? I don't think so. I think we live by the evidence of two or three witnesses, says the Old Testament, says Jesus. I, I don't live with you in the church, continually indicting you of sexism. You guys are all men. Well, surely you're living inside of a false consciousness of patriarchy and sexism. Well, yeah, hypothetically, I can understand how you get there. And, and yeah, I want to acknowledge that in, in one sense, 
I'm constantly needing to be conformed to the image of Christ. Nonetheless, I'm not going to live with you in a way that I'm, I'm permanently indicting you of those things. Now, it, when that sexism, patriarchy, as it were, manifests itself in a way I can see with the eyes, hear with the ears, by the evidence of three witnesses, yeah, I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to go after that. But I'm, I'm not living there in a permanent indictment of you. I'm not living in a permanent indictment of your potential to lust, your potential to pride, your potential to vanity. Those things have to manifest themselves according to Jesus before I'm going to come after it. Now, I might preach about it. Generally, I might say, hey, br brothers and sisters of, of the church, you know, check your hearts, fight, fight sin. You know, if, if somebody someone look, even looks at a woman lustfully, you know, if someone hates his brother, so I'm going to preach that way generally from the Bible, but I'm not going to live with you in a, in a permanent state of indictment, especially a particular class of people. You say, man, you men, you're, you're especially sexist. And in the same way, I'm, I'm not going to live with all the whites in my congregation in a, in a state of permanent indictment. I'm going to challenge every member of my church to be constantly examine their hearts <clears throat> against sinful partiality. James gives me the grounds to do that. But I'm, I'm not going to indict you of sinful partiality, a.k.a. racism, until I, I can start to see with the eyes or hear with the ears and by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Nor am I going to assume that people with light skin versus people with darker skin are more or less susceptible to one or the other. We're all susceptible. Now, you know, being honest to history, and 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 in the American and and British experience, you know, have have majority culture of, of, of folk with with white skin on the whole lived in a way that has been um, discriminatory and oppressive. Yes, I, I don't I don't want to downplay or deny the history, nor do I want to downplay or deny the present and ongoing elements of of racism. I don't want to adopt a kind of ahistoricism in which I, I, I live in denial of, of, of facts before me. But, but, that, but that's, what, that's what I'm called to look for. I'm called to look for the facts by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I'm also going to live recognizing that as, as, as a, a member of the majority culture, yeah, I, I may have potential blind spots and susceptibilities to, to partialities that are sinful. So again, I want to live in constant self-awareness and a search for those and a willingness to listen and hear what br brothers and sisters of color might have experienced and how, how they would challenge me, um, help me to see what I can't see. But to, but to me, that's just, that's just being a human being with a little bit of common sense and, and humility. The same way I'm going to try to live with my wife in an understanding way. Um, uh, sweetheart. Help me, help me see what I, you know, what I can't see. Let me listen to you. you in the context of this marriage, we're, we're in different positions, and, and I'm not infinite, and I'm not omniscient. Help me in my finitude. So what's so tough about this whole conversation? I'm kind of rabbit trailing here, guys. <laughs> you can tell the stuff that's been on my mind lately. You know, on the one hand, you have, you have, you have conservatives saying, being extremely suspicious of any distinction whatsoever. Saying, you know, as soon as you say, yeah, let's let's listen to African Americans or or people of color, 
you know, you have conservatives saying that's standpoint epistemology. Well, it, it might be standpoint. It, it might be. You, you can go all the way to that extreme where I, as, 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 as a white person, simply have certain truths that are inaccessible to me because I am inherently an, an oppressor and, and only the oppressed can speak authoritatively on these issues, that, that, that being standpoint epistemology. Um, they have certain insights and keys to morality that I simply cannot have. Okay, one might be saying that one could go that far, and that would be erroneous. That would be terrible. Or one might just recognize, yeah, we're all finite and fallen, and I need to leave, listen to people who have, have had different experiences to me, than me in the same way I do in the context of my marriage with my wife. And so what's so difficult about this conversation that we presently find ourselves embroiled in is that wisdom is often somewhere in the middle. You go too far, you get a kind of false worldview. You get a Marxist false consciousness. You get standpoint epistemology. Now, just back it up to the common sense recognition. I'm, I'm not omniscient, and then I'm, I'm, I'm finite. I mean, so I want to listen to people who've had different experiences. And of course, like, why would anybody deny that? You, know, you don't need Marxism to get you there. You, you just need, need a little bit of humility, I'd say. Um. So all of this is, is, is back to point six. Is there such a thing as structural injustice? If you mean laws and traditions and the rules that we use to govern our lives, of course, the scriptures replete with them. Do you mean something bigger, more, a false consciousness? Well, that's slippery territory in one sense, Yes, theologically, I can conceive of it insofar as I'm fallen and my worldview is just going to be fallen. But mm, be careful because we're told to live by due process. We're told to live by the evidence of two or three witnesses. We're told to live by impartiality. And, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to not going to live in a state of, of permanent suspicion and indictment of one group versus another group. Last comment, I do need to balance that with the biblical injunction to care for the weak and the vulnerable and the poor. So, so much of the difficulty of this conversation in assessing matters of structural injustice is, on the, we, we have two biblical principles to hold to some measure and tension. On the one hand, show no partiality to the poor, nor partiality to the rich. We are to be impartial, right? Exodus, uh, what is that, 20, 21, uh, 2 and 6. On the other hand, a recognition that historically we need to uphold the cause of the poor and the needy because they are often trampled upon. So I'm listening especially to war the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan have been trampled upon so that I might uphold their cause. God, a just God, tells us to do that because he does that. Okay, so I'm trying to hold these things to these two things together. And I think it's, it's, it's these multiple principles that Christians have an ear for. And that's why some of this kind of, you know, critical race theory worldview, identity politics, again, is attractive. We hear overlap. 
the problem is you can't you can't can't follow that. You, you, you got to take it from the Bible. Yeah, there might be some overlap. That's fine, but let's keep taking our cues from the Bible. Does the Bible ask us to to balance competing things? Let me let me let me let me stop there, just because I said a lot because these are treacherous waters. Before we get to point seven, any questions? Is 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 critical race theory a hot topic yeah. in your country like it is in mine? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Possibly not as hot in churches, I don't think. I might be wrong about this, but I think Praise that the Lord. there's less division within churches. Praise the Lord. I would I would come back and say actually um within the people I know, it's increasing, especially with pastors um, who may be um, pastor in black um, majority contexts within London. I, I think um, from the people that I um, know, um, they fall on different <laughs> sides on this. So um, maybe it's just me and my, you know, people I keep in contact, contact with. Um, it's certainly increasing, especially within London. Oh, I'd agree with that as well. But, well, in my own view, I think it's not primarily in terms of race or skin color, but rather related to class. Uh, what type of accent do you have? What university did you go? Uh, so there is a stronger division between working class and upper middle class. Uh, rather than based on purely skin color. So I wouldn't speak so much about racism in the UK, but more a class-based issue uh, that is not necessarily based purely on ethnicity. Any other comments or questions? How do we how do we have discussions with with people in our churches who say even the church is structurally racist and we need to be aware of that and and learn from uh, people who have experienced that how to root it out and get rid of it how do we have good conversations that don't swing to one side of critical race theory and yet admit that there are problems well, there might be problems that we're blind to as white people. Yeah, great question. Um, I, I, I just to, to sort of reinforce what I said before. I, I think I'm going to take a two-step answer to that question. I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning myself sitting with a you know, say a, a, a brother or sister in my church who, who, who takes that perspective. Hey, this whole, this whole church is, you know, based on a kind of structural racism. You, you know, you're living inside of a whiteness in which you, you can't even escape it, can't even see it. And therefore, you just need to let people of color, what, what am I going to say in that moment? Uh, I, I think number one, a word of, a word of uh, humility and sympathy. Number two, a word of biblical conviction. 
right? So number one, uh, what I said to you guys, listen, I, it, it, it's not beyond the reach of my imagine to uh, trust there may be some truth in what you're saying. That I, I, I'm living in kind of a, a set of partialities that I'm not even aware of. Again, my, my Muslim man convert in, in, in Saudi Arabia is still going to have, as I said, um, certain sexist and patriarchal conceptions of what it means to be a man in relation to his wife that he's unaware of and needs to be discipled out of. So, so yes, it's, it's not beyond the reach of my imagination to, to see how there may be some truth in what you're saying. And insofar as that's the case, uh, I want to listen to you and hear from you and, and learn what those things are, right? Uh, and pray, pray for my humility that I, I would be able to hear what those things are. Um, I am not God. I am not omniscient. I do not have a full understanding of, of, of my heart and praise God for the local church, which, which helps us see ourselves more honestly and clearly. What is, what is membership in the church? Membership in the church is, is paint being thrown on the invisible man. So you can kind of start to see himself for the first time. Like, Oh, I do have that sinful pattern. I didn't even realize it. I mean, you know how marriage works that way too. Right. So that's point one. Uh, but point two, I would also then go back to <clears throat> biblical conceptions of due process. Uh, nonetheless, friend, um, uh, <clears throat> the good news is scripture gives us very clear criteria for, for assessing these kinds of indictments. So right now, you are indicting me with a kind of sin. Um, and you're, you're, you're indicting me with sinful partiality. And, and you might be right, but, but Jesus gives us very clear standards for assessing that by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And I need to be able to see with my eyes and hear with my ears what you're pointing out. So help me understand those specific areas and ways, something concrete. Can you give me something concrete where my partiality, my sinful partiality manifests itself. Well, Jonathan, you're just being, you're just being proud and stubborn and you're, this is white fragility speaking. Mm, yeah. Okay. Maybe, but I, I, I can't, I can't live by that standard. I'm going to, I'm going to live by Jesus standard. And he, he's asking me for this. So what, 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 what's, what's the concrete thing you would point to? And let's work on that concrete thing. That, that's how I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to respond. Yeah. Cause the, the thing that, is, that'll be, that'll be, that'll be, I'm sorry. That'll be frustrating. <clears throat> Point two will be frustrating and people might leave your church and you have to be okay with that. Um, Jonathan, um, sorry. Helpful. Um, could you tell me, um, uh, just at my only personal interest, what what's the demographic of of the church you're in, please? What what does that look like, please? Oh, my my present church is ninety uh, percent white. My previous church was Capitol Baptist, is about seventy percent white. And uh, in in regards to, um, uh, I mean, I find it uh, interesting what you're saying. Um, in your conversations, in, 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 I know that you, you've got of, obviously no Tisby, and um, 
do you have these conversations with um, with Tisby and Anthony Bradley? I've just wondered if you've had these same conversations with um, other um, pastors who used to be in similar circles, like Eric Mason and stuff. And 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 how does other pastors have discussed that with you and where they land? I just wondered if you if you've been through that process. I'm not not with not with Tisby. I, I wouldn't say I have a relationship with Tisby. We had a I met him once and we had a brief email relationship. But he he's kind of moved further out of the circles that I'm in. And Bradley is I've I've never met Bradley. We've inter, we've interacted once or twice on on Twitter, but I, I I don't have any sort of relationship with with Anthony Bradley. Uh, I have had these conversations with other closer. Uh, African-American friends, kind of longtime friends. Um, and they're good and challenging conversations. So I had it at a lunch table just recently with, with one particular brother uh, who, who is a little bit further to the left of me, maybe a step or two to the left of me. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a good, challenging conversation. I don't know in the final analysis, we see eye to eye. But he, he understands what I'm saying. And I'm, I'm actually, what, one thing I did say is I'd like to write up, and he did agree with this. If I summarize it this way, it's, it's like if you have two columns, a bad column and a good column, bad column is race essentialism. Everything is by race. Kind of a Marxist false consciousness, race essentialism. It's not a biological, but it's a socially constructed essentialism versus good column, race consciousness. Bad column, uh, historicism, if you, if you know that phrase, kind of a Marxist history, like all of history is, is pushing towards this particular. Good column, history, unawareness of history. Ba bad column, guilty till proven innocent. Good column, innocent till proven guilty. Bad column, structural false consciousness. Good column, concrete, manifest, identifiable structural injustices. Bad column, anti-color blindness in any and all circumstances. Good column, a combination of color consciousness and a color blindness, depending on what we're... There is a place for one new man. There is a place for... We, are, we share humanity. Not everything is defined by race neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. There is a place for, and, and CRT has no place for that. So I think a right understanding has to combine color consciousness, especially historically, with color blindness in other respects. And that, that takes wisdom. Anyway, so as I, as I laid all of that out, this, this brother, he's like, yeah, I could get on board with that. You need, you need to fill that out further. Um, another, another, another conversation with another brother, uh, minority brother uh, agreement, another one disagreement. So, does that help, Jason? Um, yeah, um, it's really interesting. I, I didn't jump in because of, um, I obviously, you, you can tell where you land um, because it's a faraway phrase. You said, I'm thinking it's out of my head, and it's a way that you engage with it, not just emotionally as well. So, um, I suppose um, I may not agree on everything, but I do find uh, yourself um, hugely helpful and stimulating because I, I love brothers like you who are having these conversations and who are thinking it out biblically. So I have the 
um, I'm not just saying this, a, a lot of respect for, uh, even before you come in, I thought to myself, I wonder how this white evangelical American is going to tackle these things. I just can't wait. And I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I been, yeah, I said it to my wife in the kitchen, I can't wait for this brother turns out. But I, I found it really helpful. And I was going to say, um, I do hope that, um, is that in some way or form, I'm, I'm sure that you're busy, but you can produce some sort of notes because I will listen to these videos again, but I want to keep learning. And I think that, so it's humility as well. I'm aware of, I have blind spots, what I bring to the table. Some are yeah. um, cultural, historical and unbiblical and it's charged with emotion and it's not Christ-like. So I'm just trying no, to right. in what you're teaching. So it's some things I might say, mm, I'm not sure about that, but it doesn't mean Jonathan's right or wrong. Let me explore this and pray about this. So I just find it really helpful what you're teaching. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. And yeah, let me let me quickly stay. Uh, I, I, it's funny. I, I wrote on some race stuff back in, and gave talks at my church on race matters uh, back in 2016-17. I've kind of backed away a little bit from the topic for a number of reasons, but key among them being, I'm watching my own views continue to grow and evolve. And things I was just convinced of a year ago, I'm like, oh, I'm not really convinced of that anymore. Glad I didn't write that article after all. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> so it's like, when, 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 when do you reach the point where like, okay, now's the time to write the piece. Well, just wait another year. You might, you might not think what you think right now. Because so much of this is not just our biblical exegesis as such. So much of it is um, no, I don't even know how to put it. So, so much of it is uh, you know, okay, I was thinking about these verses before, but now it's like this conversation with this brother helped me to realize, okay, well, there's also these verses too. And I'm really, I haven't really been thinking of those. What that means to this. You know, so all that to say, thank, thank you, Jason. I, I, uh, yeah, I don't presume for a second I have the, the um, objective standard on all of these things. This is all right. The, the good, the good thing is, Bob, we we don't, but we we forget that Christ does. So that's why. Yeah, I, that's right. Amen. That's why it's helpful. We don't, but Christ does. Amen. Amen. Any other comments or questions? Well, I suppose it's David, constable here. But the other thing is the mindset you're conditioned to over many years. So I've got a couple of colored friends in South Africa who we support through their charity in Cape Town. And they were very uh, fearful of meeting us because my, my son was the one who brought us together. He, he worked in a township out there. They've never had a white couple in their house uh, ever before. So they didn't know what to expect. Yeah. So we're good friends. They came over to this country and I took it. We're, we're playing in a charity golf event and we're staying at this place. And there's some other South Africans there who are white. And it's interesting how they sort of looked at them almost as if they were not their equals. And they, you could pick up the vibe. So yeah. there's this mindset issue as well where people, uh, you know, I've got some good friends. My church is majority black, it's 95% Jamaican. And I have to 
understand that the way they've been treated uh, through their time in this country, I've had to reprimand my white friends to say, actually, no, you don't understand. They've always been conditioned this way because of the way we treated them. So they don't have the same mm -hmm. expectations, maybe, mm -hmm. I would have my children because of the way they've been treated. So there's, it's a structural institutional, as this term institutional is brought in. So it's something that's endemic in all of us. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's reinforced in our living. And we have to sort of work against it, and especially in Christian circles, to encourage. So the, this white couple, uh, this colored couple now, very confident. They've, they've been exposed to England. They've been exposed to equal things uh, to I have. And they're amazing how they've blossomed. But all those years of apartheid conditioned them that way. Yeah, see, that's that just totally get it. And, and what's interesting, the way you're talking right now, David, is you use that word condition, right? And that's 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 a word people have used for decades, centuries. Christians like, oh yeah, conditioned to, to think this way. And, and we all get that, right? We, we I, I think I think we all understand how that can happen. That that was my you know Muslim man who becomes a Christian example. He's kind of been conditioned to think of men this way and women's this way, just as a sort of intuitive, common sense, human reality, sociological observation. They've been conditioned this way. What's so tricky in this present moment is that uh, the, the th critical theory, neo-Marxism, weaponizes that and makes it makes that historical observation into a, though it doesn't say it does this, it effectively does this, turns it into a historicist a worldview kind of necessarily conclusion that sort of takes everything over. So when a Christian says something like what you just said, oh, they've been conditioned this way. Other Christians be like, oh, you've completely capitulated to neo-Marxism. Uh, have I? Or am I just observing that sometimes culture conditions people, really? You know, it's like, I don't think that was that radical of a thing to say. Nonetheless, there needs to be an awareness to susceptibility, to capitulation, to ungodly worldviews. So to my, to my brothers on the right who are like, you're neo-Marxist, I'm going to say, uh, calm down, maybe. But to my brothers on the left, I do want to say, be a little leery, please. Be careful. Because some of those perspectives and worldviews can take you to places where you're imprisoned by a permanent indictment of people who are different than you. You know, an example I, I often use is, you know, an African-American sister was relating the story about how she was in a grocery store and an older white gentleman and her kind of collided in a coming out of aisles at the same time. And he looked at her and he smiled and just said, yeah, please go ahead. And then she went ahead, but she thought back to her. She's like, he just, he just, he's condescending to me because I'm, I'm black. But then she caught herself and thought, of course, if he hadn't said go ahead and he just kind of charged in front of me, I would have said, oh, he's charging in front of me and being rude because I'm black. <laughs> and so she had the, the self-awareness to recognize, okay, th that was a no-win situation for him. I was necessarily going to indict him because of skin color in that moment. And so she recognized, I I'm actually kind of imprisoned in a worldview of, you know, 
what you might call a confirmation bias in psychology terms. And she needs to get out of that confirmation bias. And uh, all that to say, these things are these, these things are, are really difficult. And may the Lord give us wisdom and charity with one another. Oh, goodness, do we not need charity? So I, I, I hear charity and meekness from both you, David, and you, Jason, as, as, you, as you're entering into this conversation. I, I hope I'm also offering a kind of charity and, and meekness. Lord, please give us that, right, in these conversations. Can't go wrong with meekness or charity as we as we seek to understand God's God's word. Okay, that's <clears throat> well, that's number six. Is there such a thing as structural injustice? Uh, number seven. What is what does this mean? What time are we at? Uh, we're supposed to be done at four minutes ago. Don't break. Is that right? Man, you guys asking for all these breaks. Come on! <laughs> breaks are for the week. All right, let's let's take uh, let's take let's take five minutes, and I and I mean five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, and I'll see you back. <clears throat> all right, y'all hear me? Yep. Mark Higgins, can you hear me? Yes. We can't yes. see you though. All right. Yours, yours was the first face I saw on my screen, which is why I called on you. We still can't see you though. But is that really such a problem? I mean, do you really want to be looking at me? Oh, we'd love, we'd love to, brother. <laughs> okay, there we are. There we are. There we are. Um, what is Number seven, what does doing justice mean for <clears throat> Father, give us mercy, help us to continue to learn and grow according to your word. And if anything I say is erroneous, pray that these brothers would not hear it, overlook it, forget it. But what is true, help them to remember. Number seven, what does doing justice mean for civil governments? What does doing justice mean for civil governments? Um To be sure, okay, I've, I've, I've given you multiple texts to say that is the government's primary job. Um, <clears throat> By justice, a king builds up the land because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness, said the queen of Sheba to Solomon, 1 Kings 10, 9. So David, or uh, 2 Samuel 8, 15. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness to all his people, 2 Samuel 8, 15. Um, so yes, governments should concern themselves with equality, rights, freedom, peace, truth, and order. Um, but, but in a day in which the world demands new forms of equality, like marriage equality, and new forms of rights, like right to death with dignity, and new forms of freedom, like the freedom to abort, Christians should recognize that our primary concern lies with a just equality, a just set of rights, a just set of freedoms, a just peace. So, brother, pastors, when you are teaching your congregation about government, again, you're saying justice is primary. And all of those other things are second, true, but secondary and derivative from the standpoint. Okay, what standards of righteousness then bear upon the state's work of establishing justice? Where, 
where do we find the terms of the contract? Where's the fine print? Is, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the second table of the Ten Commandments? Is it something in the New Testament? Is it everything the Bible calls sin? Should we be putting to death people who commit bestiality? Well, the short answer is protecting the Imago Dei. God established governments for the purpose of providing the conditions whereby God imagers would flourish as God imagers. Justice is therefore calibrated by these terms. Uh, where, where do I get that? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The Imago Dei is the standard government is called to protect it's the it's the fine print okay and in that regard government is called to establish what i would call noahic justice noahic justice and noahic justice is a narrow constrained limited jurisdictional assignment for, ju for justice. It is a protectionist version of justice. It protects. As opposed to a perfectionist, all-encompassing view, encompassing, sorry, all-encompassing view of justice. So you have a protectionist view of justice and you have a perfectionist view of justice. Noahic justice is a protectionist, minimal, thin, narrow, constrained view of justice. You know, going back to Damiano's question, Jonathan, are, are, are we imposing our religion? Yes, but we are within a very narrow band. Uh, a Noahic protectionist view of justice. And in that regard, civil governments serve as, I think I said yesterday, platform builders. Their God, task is not to require everything God requires of God imagers, but to build a platform to, stay, to set a stage for God imagers to do everything God requires of them. They're just building the platform of peace, order, flourishing, justice. The flourishing of the Imago Dei is the standard. And the justice doing of the government, whether legislative, executive, judicial branches, means rendering judgment according to that standard. Okay? A government's Moral authority, I said to you yesterday, does not come from the consent of the people. It comes from God's requirement, and the requirement means protecting and upholding the Imago Dei. So anything that harms, hurts, oppresses, exploits, hinders, tramples upon, degrades, threatens human beings as God imagers, arguably becomes a target for the government's opposition. Let me say that again. Anything that harms, hurts, oppresses, exploits, hinders, tramples upon, degrades, or threatens human beings as God imagers arguably becomes, and I say arguably because we might disagree, we can have those conversations, but we can agree on the criteria, arguably becomes a target of the government's opposition. And by implication, 
flip side of that coin, anything that aids, abets, promotes, encourages a set of conditions that contributes to the ability of God imagers to live out their vocation of imaging God should be considered a candidate for possible government encouragement. Anything that aids, abets, promotes, encourages a set of conditions that contributes to the ability of God imagers to live out the vocation of imaging God should be considered a candidate for possible government encouragement. That's an implication. Or as Paul put it, punish the bad, reward the good. Now, Christians are going to disagree over how far the demands of justice warrant such activity. Does protecting and affirming the Imago D warrant universal health care? A progressive tax structure? A ceiling on carbon dioxide emissions? National math standards for eight for 13-year-olds? Does it require the existence of a federal aviation authority and commercial airline and construction? We're going to disagree. And I think such disagreements and debates are good to engage. And I think they belong to the category of wisdom and prudence. But the point is, we have a basic standard by which to assess our answers, engage our arguments. What protects and establishes the platform on which God imagers can fulfill their divine calling as God imagers. Um, uh, we all know that insofar as a nation or a government denies God and denies that people are made in God's image, is a nation that will veer towards various forms of injustice. Deny God, deny people as God imagers, and you can expect in short order that nation will veer towards injustice. People will abort their babies. Think your nation and mine. They will leave their unwanted infants for dead. Think China. They will oppress their women. Think Muslim countries. They will kill their old. Think Denmark. They will enslave or disenfranchise any groups the power holders don't like. Take your pick of any nation you want. <laughs> Number eight. Number seven is what does it mean for government? What's the standard of good? You guys notice I'm building here. I, I said, in order to, we have to define justice from the Bible, uh, it's rendering judgment according to righteousness. I said, okay, we need to define that according to context. We need to define that according covenantally. Okay, we just define it covenantally for, for, for the state or governments from the Noahic covenant. But question eight then is, okay, what does doing justice mean for the individual Christian or church member? What does it mean for the individual Christian or church member? The fine print for civil governments is Imago Dei, protecting the Imago Dei. The fine print for the individual Christian is living the Imago Dei, 
as pictured by Christ and codified in his new covenant. The standard for the individual Christian is living as the Imago Dei, as pictured by Christ and codified in his new covenant. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Follow me as I follow Christ, says Paul. We are being conformed to his same image from one degree of glory to the next, says Paul. In other words, if Noahic justice is a protectionist justice, the new covenant offers us a form of perfectionist justice. And we as individual Christians, church members, are called to that. Governments build a platform. Individual Christians live on it together with the rest of humanity, but we live on it by modeling God's own justice and righteousness for all people by working to be conformed to the image of the Son. Okay, so let, 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 me, let me back up in the biblical storyline here for, for a second. God called Israel's people to live in justice and righteousness and to be a model for the nations. We looked at those texts yesterday. We looked at Exodus 19. We looked at Deuteronomy 4. Of course, the people of Israel failed. Therefore, God promised a new covenant, one where he would give what he commands by writing his law on his people's hearts. Actually, we haven't looked at those texts yet. We're going to look at them probably after lunch. But but you but you know the text, you know, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. He, he'll give what he commands by writing his law in his people's hearts. The, the new will fulfill the old, and particularly through the work of the Messiah. The Messiah would establish and picture God's justice fully. Listen to Isaiah 9-7, one of our favorite Christmas verses, right? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over in his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. This time forth and forevermore, Isaiah 9-7. So that the Messiah would come and picture God's perfectionist justice perfectly, uphold his government with it. And then Isaiah 42. Listen to how many times the word justice is used in these few verses in Isaiah 42. It was weird. I remember when I started looking at justice, I, you know, this is a text of bruised reed, you will not break this morning with you. It's like, wow, look at Look how many times the word justice is used in these verses. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. That's Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Yet, unexpectedly and even mystifyingly, this Messiah would do justice by redeeming God's people. Isaiah 127, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and in those in her who repent by righteousness. So does the, the, does the Messiah redeem a people because they are really righteous and just? No. It's because God has specially united himself to a people like a man to his wife. And through his death and resurrection, God's son would pronounce, I do. 
and pay all her debts and grant her all his wealth. So Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness. Or you could translate the justice of God. In the very face of their faithlessness, God said, and I will make for, this is, this, this is Hosea 2, verses 18 and 19. Hosea 2, verses 18 and 19. I will make for them a covenant on that day, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Isn't that remarkable? So sure enough, Jesus comes as the perfect image of God, Colossians 1.15. He fulfilled the requirements of every covenant from Adam to David. He established himself as the firstborn of a new creation, bringing justice, Matthew 12.18, bringing justice and redemption. So his sacrifice of atonement paid the penalty of sin for all of God's people. He satisfied God's requirements of justice because in divine forbearance, think Romans 3, because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. The propitiation of Christ's blood showed God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then by virtue of our inclusion in the new covenant, says Paul, Christians are being, 2 Corinthians 3.18, be conformed the same image, degree, the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So the Christian's just and righteous life is one of being conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And therefore, we as Christians strive to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So governments build the platform for the Imago Dei. Christians live out what it means to be the Imago Dei. We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Colossians 3.10. And as we walk in the way of the Lord of the covenant by doing justice and righteousness, we display the character and righteousness and justice and likeness and image and glory of the Son of the Father in heaven, like Father, like Son, and like sons, right? So where does, listen to this, where does justice begin for the new covenant Christian? How do we administer righteousness? First, we do justice by repenting and believing. We put our faith in Christ. The righteousness shall live by his faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is applied first by trusting Christ. We must be justified. How do I do justice? I need to be justified by receiving the righteousness of Christ. Second, a Christian does justice by being baptized and joining a church. This act of submission, what do we do when we're baptized and join a church? Well, we're declaring that God's judgments are just and that his ways are all right. We are assenting to the judgments of God. We are saying, I am a sinner in need of condemnation, but now I'm united to him by faith. I am administering righteousness at them. I'm declaring righteousness at that moment. So first, we, we do justice by repenting and believing. Second, we do it by being baptized and joining a third. Third, 
we do justice through evangelism. To proclaim the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is to declare how God has and will administer justice. To call people to repent and believe is to name their injustice. Hey, you're a sinner. That's unjust. And I'm calling you now to righteousness and justice. How do you get there? You trust in Christ. He'll forgive your sins and reconcile you to himself and lead you in the way of the just and righteous life. Evangelism, when followed by conversion, applies God's positional righteousness to people. Evangelism, when accompanied by the Spirit, enables people to begin growing in existential righteousness. Want a just neighborhood? Share the gospel. When people become Christians and join a church, they begin to participate in the life of true justice and righteousness. That should typify our churches. Fourth, Christians do justice by living a life characterized by justice and righteousness in every context. We learn what Christ says is right, and we do it, obeying Matthew 28, 19, obeying everything he has commanded. We make judgments according to everything Christ has commanded. Christian husbands will give their wives what is due them living with them in an understanding way. Christian employers give employees the wages due them rather than living in self-indulgence, James 5.4. Christian police officers will not extort money by threats or false accusations, Luke 3.14. Christian citizens should be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, Titus 3.1. And in general, a Christian concern for justice will show itself as a concern for those who have been hurt by injustice. So just to sum up everything I said, look, look at the screen. Christians do justice by being justified uniting to God's justified people, evangelizing so that others may be justified, living in justice and righteousness like Christ, and awaiting the final judgment. That is how we render judgment in according with righteousness. That is how we render judgment according to righteousness. And, and you'll notice the language of justice is used throughout the Old Testament. Then it, it's not used in quite the same way in the New Testament. We translate it as righteousness. And this idea of, of justification starts to take over in Paul. Does that mean the idea of justice in those Old Testament terms disappears? No, it doesn't disappear. But now it's transacted through the justice and righteousness of Christ, which we must receive by faith. And then we live. So insofar as our Christian friends on the political left say, do justice, do justice, do justice, very often, and what they mean by that is, you know, do good works and get involved politically in these particular kinds of things. I think they're, they're working with an attenuated, thinned out view of justice. Because justice starts with the need for justification. 
And I mean that in the good old-fashioned Reformation, Luther, sola fide sense, lest there be any mistake. I did not mean that in a new perspective sense. Justice begins for the Christian with saying, I'm a sinner. God is righteous. There's nothing I can do to save myself. There's nothing I can do to commend myself to God. That is a just statement. That is rendering judgment on myself and on him in accordance with God's standards of righteousness right there. Step one, step two. I have no hope other than the mercy and forgiveness of God displayed to me in the giving of his own righteousness by imputation, active and passive, to me. That, too, is a just and righteous statement and judgment. Step three, I'm holding on to that righteousness of Christ. It's my only hope. Like the woman reaching out to touch Jesus' garment. It's my only hope. It's, it's the righteousness he gives me. That, too, is a just and righteous judgment on my part. I'm doing justice, in other words, through repentance and faith. And then everything else flows from that. Okay, that's the standard. The standard of justice for the individual Christian is perfection. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the only way we get there is through the imputation of Christ's own righteousness. And then slowly, little by little, be conformed from one degree of glory to the next to that own. So what then is the relationship? Question nine. What is the relationship between justification and justice? What is the relationship between justification and justice? Well, it's, 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 it's a straightforward one. It's nothing more or less than the relationship between faith and works or gospel and law or indicative imperative in, in Protestant perspective. Um, we, we, we could as easily borrow from James and substitute justification and justice with faith and works, okay? <clears throat> James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You have justification and I have justice. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me your justification apart from your justice, really? And I will show you my justification by my works of justice. In, in other words, the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone creates a whole new body politic, one where true justice and righteousness finally prevail. Um, let me show you my illustration again. And this is a little messy on the screen, but this is similar to an illustration I gave you all yesterday. You all see that? Justification by faith alone creates, you see the arrows, justice-seeking individuals and a justice-seeking people. 
Can you guys see that? Yeah. And a justice-seeking individuals and justice-seeking people display, gives credibility to, protects, proves the fact that one has received justification by faith alone. As I said a moment ago, you put faith and works in there. Your faith creates works. Your works display, give credibility to protect your faith. God's, or put another set of words in there. God's gospel creates gospel obedience. Gospel obedience display, gives credibility to protect, proves God's gospel. Okay? Um, There that is. Trying to. How do I stop share? And I'm so good at technology. I cannot get it off of stop share. Should be top of your screen. I, uh, yeah, I know. I see it there. I'm pushing the button and nothing's happening. Oh, sure. Yeah, there. Oh, sorry. Uh, do you see it move as I move it? No, it's just frozen there? Oh, oh, yeah. here, we oh go. here we are. Okay, yeah, something's, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so, okay, we're back. Uh, Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us, and this is me now just proving that little cycle, that little flow chart I showed you. Here's three verses to, pr to prove my flow chart. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right? Faith creates deed. Justification by faith alone creates justice. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. Colossians 1.22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right? So the gospel of justification by faith alone creates just and righteous lives, which in turn display, give, give credibility to, protect the message of justification by faith alone. Justified sinners pursue justice. One aspect of general Christian obedience to Christ. It's what they do. It's part and parcel of their new nature. <clears throat> Babies cry. Leopards have spots. Justified sinners pursue justice. We're a people who strive to make righteous judgments, justice, righteous judgments in all of life. And in that way, brothers, I would say that sola fide is defined by Martin Luther and not by N.T. Wright. Sola fide is the most powerful political doctrine in the Bible. It is the most powerful political doctrine in the Bible. Why? Well, objectively, it unifies people who are once enemies. 
objectively, it unifies people who are once enemies. Subjectively, it removes all the grounds of boasting, the grounds of self-rule, and therefore the grounds of racism and oppression and abuse and exploitation. I can no longer lord it over than you and say, I'm whiter than you. Therefore, I should rule. I can no longer say I'm wealthier than you. Therefore, I should rule. I can no longer say I'm wiser than you. I'm progressive. Therefore, I should rule. I'm British. I'm American. I'm Tutsi. I'm Japanese. I'm aristocrat. Aristocracy. I'm royal. Therefore, I should rule. Sola fide removes, says Paul in, first, in, in Romans 3.29, removes all the grounds of boasting. I'm a sinner. I'm unwise. I'm a fool. I deserve nothing. I do not deserve to rule. Anything I have is a gift of grace. End of racism. End of oppression. End of abuse. End of exploitation. So again, sola fide is the most political, politically powerful doctrine in the Bible. Objectively, it unifies people who are in enemies. Subjectively, it removes all the grounds of boasting and therefore the grounds of self-rule and all other forms of oppression. So preaching the doctrine of sola fide more than any advocacy group, any political party, any NGO, any social movement, any lecture on justice is what will produce a true and lasting justice both in this world and the next. <clears throat> Brother Protestant pastors, we have political dynamite in our hands and it is the gospel and it is sola fide. And we are preaching that to a congregation of people. And by that, they are being saved, justified, and they are being conformed to the standards of justice. They are laying down their weapons of war. They are laying down their swords. And they are living in peace and meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and a purity of heart. And they are saying, not only do I not want to commit adultery, I, I don't even want to lust. Not, not only do I not want to murder, I, I don't want to hate. Hey, you, you, you want my, my cloak? Here's, here's, my, here's my tunic as well. You, you ask me to go one mile, I'll go two with you. So it says, as we preach the doctrine of sola fide, as we preach the gospel, we are forming a new society of just and righteous people. They've been justified, and now they are pursuing righteousness because they've, they've stopped boasting in themselves, and their boast is in Christ, the just one. So I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I genuinely I get excited as I think about the glorious doctrines that the Lord has given us in the Protestant Reformation. Okay. Through his, through his, given us in his word, and has been given amazing voice to through the Protestant Reformation and through 
uh, proclamation of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Okay, that's 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 eleven uh, nine. What's the relationship between justification and justice? Number ten. What does doing justice mean for the church corporately? We thought about the state. We thought about the individual Christian. Okay, number nine, we took a slight detour. Okay, what's the relationship between justice and justification? Number 10, what does doing justice mean for the church corporately? How do local churches corporately do justice? By that, I don't mean local church members acting individually through the week. I mean them acting collectively, corporately together. Um, once more, describing justice for the church corporately depends on reading the fine print. How has, what's the fine print? Well, in brief, I would say Jesus has authorized churches to make disciples by wielding the keys of the kingdom. And we're going to talk a lot about that in, in after lunch and tomorrow. Um, I should probably stop actually. What, time, what, what, what are we going to? We're going to... On a clock. Oh, shoot. I have three minutes? And this clock... He, he's authorized churches to do justice by making disciples by wielding the keys of the kingdom if a church member's job is to live out the imagoi as sons and daughters of the divine king a church's job is to name those sons and daughters and to explain how they are to live if, if the state is a platform builder the churches are sign makers you can write that down if you want if, if the state is a platform builder churches are sign makers they they hang signs on the right gospel confession and on the right gospel confessors. They say, this is the gospel. Here are its citizens. Through preaching, baptism, and Lord's suppers, local churches declare and render judgment on the what and the who of the gospel. So compared to the church members, then, the whole church's job, acting corporately, is quite narrow. It, 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 it is to church members or Christians what law schools are to lawyers or med schools are to doctors. They don't do they identify and train the doers, okay? They don't do, they identify and train the doers. That's what we corporately together do. Churches do justice. They render righteous judgment, that is, when they rightly affirm the gospel, rightly interpret and teach scripture, rightly affirm in a believer through baptism, rightly distribute the supper, rightly gather and worship. And each one of those exercises depends upon an interpretive judgment, a judgment that examines God's standards of righteousness in Scripture, and then applies it to a person or a group of people. So, for instance, suppose a church declares that something, that something is righteous, which this, the Scripture calls wicked. The church says, yeah, men can marry men, women can marry women. Well, I would call that an, not just an unrighteous church, I would call it an unjust church. It's it's harming people, it's sending them to, potentially sending them to hell. I, th I think that's an unjust church. By the same token, suppose the church accuses an innocent person of guilt and excommunicates her. This woman has come forward with charges of abuse against a pastor. And the, the other pastors just kind of poop her and call her Potiphar's wife, and they they, they rally around in defense of their, their, their brother elder, and they... they they scandalize the woman for making charges of, of, of sexual impropriety by this elder. And they, they don't give her a fair hearing. They don't pursue the facts of the matter. They just 
They act protectively by circling the wagons. That's an unjust church. So in short, churches acting together do justice or injustice in that place God has given them authority and responsibility. Churches acting together do justice or injustice in the place that God has given them authority and responsibility. Where has he given them authority and responsibility? Well, in their membership decisions and in their teaching, which is where they identify and train. So justice, again, go back to the beginning of context, and I'm going to wrap it up right here. Justice means different things in different contexts, I said. What authority means one thing in my marriage contract, it means another thing in my mortgage contract. Where have I been given responsibility and authority in my marriage? Where have I been given responsibility and authority in my mortgage contract? Look at the fine print. Okay, where is a local church acting together been given authority and responsibility? Well, it's in, it's, in, it's in teaching and in membership decisions, right? The who and the what of the gospel and declaring those things. So it's in that domain that a church together that jurisdictional lane, a church together can do justice or can do injustice. You see? I said there are 11. I'm just going to skip the 11th and pretend I said 10. There's 10 things I wanted to say to you. <laughs> Those are the 10. <laughs> we are out of time. Are there any, let's take any quick questions because when I want it, when we come back, well, no, I'll tell you what, when we come back, we, we can do a little Q&A on, on this, maybe five to 10 minutes on, on this, maybe more, depending on how it's going. If there's a lot of questions, we can do more. But then we're going to get back to our biblical theology and talk about the new covenant, talk about the church. So this course is called Church in the World, and, and we haven't got to the church yet. Come on, Lee. <laughs> Halfway through, I haven't even talked about the church. What's with you? All right, so I will see you guys in Lord willing. Maybe he'll come back first, but if he doesn't, one hour. Thank you. Two o'clock. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. All right, brothers. Um, we're back. And I'm happy to begin with questions about my remarks on justice, but let me first pray. Father, moving into the afternoon, our bodies are weak and quick to be tired with, uh, with the food you provided in us. And so now, in addition to providing food, we pray that you provide the energy we need to pay attention and to work, uh, and to study and to learn and to consider and to think, discuss uh, what you would have us learn about your church and what you intend for your church in scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What do you, what do you, what do you got? Can I ask Dave Stavely here? Who, who talks or represents the church to the government? So we got, I noticed in the Trump campaign, he had a group of Christians praying over him. In our country, I wonder who spoke to David Cameron about gay marriage from our church. I think, I think there's a big silence there. Uh, what do we do about that sort of scenario? Yeah. Uh, it's not clear to me from scripture that there is an answer to that question. That is to say, I, unless you can think of it, I can't think of it. 
um, any specified individual who's responsible for that fact. Now, over time, different leaders have stepped up and claimed that mantle, right? Uh, obviously, the Pope did for, for a long time, the history of the church. Um, bishops in, in, in Anglicanism would, would continue to do so, I, I assume. Uh, in the United States, it, it's kind of a free-for-all, and it tends to be the celebrity pastors, Orthodox or not, you know? So for, from, from the Bible, it's just the Bible doesn't specify that. Uh, in the Bible, it's going to be each and every individual church and, and Christian. Um, and therefore, I, I would re I'd recommend that, that churches step carefully and wisely and circumspectly before they presume to do that. I, I appreciate, uh, you know, I, I recall, you know, hearing stories of this or that African pastor preaching a second, I can't... What country was it? Let's say it was Zimbabwe. Somebody, somebody, you know, you know, the president happens to show up in a church one Sunday, and and, and the pastor feels the freedom to preach right at him. I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, Donald Trump shows up in David Platt's church one Sunday. Um, David Platt prays for him. I don't think he should have called him up on stage as Trump requested. Uh, but I think he was certainly right to pray for Trump, and I, I think he should have felt free to preach at Trump. You know, um, I I think it's fine when a uh, a church decides to excommunicate a a senator for their staunch support of abortion. That's speaking to the state, right? In, in a certain respect. So I, I'm just going to leave it on the shoulders of any every any and every church and Christian, rather than designate a specific individual for that as such. The corporate church you we talking about the, the local church you're a member of. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, as a Baptist, that's the only church I believe in. Visible church, I believe in. I don't. I don't believe in a connectional, visible hierarchy church. But, but that's why we rely church on para-organizations para to speak for us then. Well, that 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 and that that can be that can be problematic too, right? So, you know, Gospel Coalition decides we speak for the church. If if New York Times wants to know what Christianity thinks, let's call the Gospel Coalition. Well, I, I I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that either, right? Um, yeah, I, I think we should leave it to each church, each individual Christian, to speak. I don't know that I need the Gospel Coalition speaking for me or the Billy Graham Association speaking for me or the Church of England speaking for me. I just wonder Colin what, Grimwood. Yeah. I'm <laughs> uh, just wondering what, what you think. I mean, uh, I, I, I pretty agree with what was said about individual Christians being involved in, in justice and so on. Um, what do you think of... of, of a church may be in an area of, um, of poverty and and the needs are, are too big for individuals to, to address and for the church to get the gospel across to uh, to, to an area of needs, um, you know, feeling need to, to get involved in, in social issues and and, um, and trying to do something for the people in, 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 a, 
in a temporal sense, do you think there's a place for the local church to be involved as, as, as corporately in, in doing that kind of thing when it's just too big for individuals? Yeah, uh, I think there's freedom too. Yet yeah, then I'm, now let me let me limit let me list my caveats or my restrictions on that. Uh, number one, I would remind the church that its primary mission is not the relieving of that particular malady social malady, whatever it happens to be, that, that, that's not, and we, we haven't got to the lecture yet on mission of the church. We'll get, we'll get there, Lord willing, present rate, I don't know if we will, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get to the mission of the church soon. I, I don't think it is the church's corporate's primary responsibility to, to you know, relieve physical need, suffering. Um, it, it, its primary purpose is making disciples. So caveat number one is, there's freedom to, but so long as it doesn't supplant, put at risk, hinder, jeopardize its primary mission, right? Uh, number two, the, the limit, a limitation I would put in place is um, um, pastor, be careful not to wrongly bind the conscience of your members to supporting things that scripture doesn't necessarily require them to support. Um, the Bible commands us to do justice and to do good deeds, to do good works. It commands us to do that. The Bible doesn't prescribe the particular path those good deeds need to take for Jonathan Lehman, Colin Grimwood, right? It, it, it doesn't say, you, single mother, working three jobs, trying to make ends meet, you need to use your Saturdays and give your extra income to this particular project that we as a church have decided to do. And you need to feel like a bad Christian if you won't get on board with our particular program. Now, Scripture leaves freedom for that single mom with her stewardship of time and resources it commands her to do, to do good, yes. But again, it doesn't command her to do that good in a particular path. And so anytime you as a church programmatically <clears throat> decide to, to um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, programmatically pursue a particular path of good works of justice, you as a pastor need to be very careful uh, to use language and to lead out in a way that respects the consciences of individual Christians. You know, so for instance, my, my, my former pastor, Mark Dever, used the illustration of, um, certainly the, I think the, the, the Bible commands us, or I would say by implication rather, like pretty clear implication, the Bible commands us not to be pro-choice, not to be pro-abortion, but, but, but to work to protect the lives of the unborn. Um, I, I think that's a pretty clear implication of scripture. Um, um, but my pastor would never get up, he said, and say, hey, church, this week, I recommend we all get involved in the pro-life march. Why, Mark? Would you, would you not go to a pro-life march? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I would. Well, why, why will you not encourage your church to? Because I trust that there's members of my church who might actually think that that's, that's counterproductive to the pro-life cause. 
So I, I can, from scripture, encourage them or tell them, I, I exhort them to be, to be pro-life, but I, but I can't exhort them which strategies to take, which tactics to take to pursue a pro-life cause. I want to be very careful as a pastor not to bind their conscience and make them feel like a bad Christian again if they're not. Okay, so anytime you are programmatically undertaking a certain good work, justice program, as a pastor, I think there's some freedom to do it. I'm just giving you these, these, uh, these, these cautions. One, don't supplant your primary mission. Two, don't over-require of your members what the Bible does not require of them. Make sense? Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's good. You know, part, part of that last bit is, is recognizing you're not an expert. You went to seminary. You, you, didn't, you didn't go to social work school. You, you know, you, you, you and I are not experts on political tactics and strategies, and we're not, we're not, we're not experts on, on poverty alleviation and, and, and so forth, right? And uh, that's why we, we want to be very careful not to presume and to act like experts. Were, that's driving outside of our lane. The Lord has not given us authority on such things. He's given us authority to teach the Bible. Now, as I lead out in my personal life and say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to obey the Bible this way, that's a good thing to do. Follow me. I think there's a good way. But hey, you know what? You might have other ways of doing it. That's okay. Sorry. Anything else on justice, doing of justice? I mean, every lecturer loves to think that he was just so clear in his lecture. There's no questions to ask. <laughs> it was all clear. It was all compelling. But I just kind of don't believe that. So, what else? I'm just thinking what were you you were saying uh, just before uh, about like uh, pro-life, abortion, etc. And it came to my mind, uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, <sighs> is there any any particular instance in which we are we have the right? to tell from the pulpit or from the church, we shouldn't uh, support that particular uh, political group, or we should go like co confess, co I mean, I mean, it, it comes to my mind the concept of confessing by resistance and resisting by confessing. So to take actually an action against a government that has become tyrannical, and what does that mean in uh, practical terms? Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> number one, yes, I think there are extreme times in which a pastor has the ability to say no. I, th I feel like I said this on the first day. I forget. Forgive me if I'm repeating myself. I think there's room to say no. I think there's less room to say yes. Yes, you must vote for this candidate. Yet yeah, you must vote for this party. Again, because getting, getting back to my point with Colin, I, I can't constrain the different paths of righteousness you might take, but I can more easily, at least, constrain paths of wickedness you must not take. And I, I, I do think occasionally in history, there are moments where it should be clear to us, and it's not always, that that, that is a path of wickedness. You, you cannot. So, so Bonhoeffer's resistance to Hitler, I think, I think that was clear. And had he got, uh, you know, ascended a pulpit and said, congregation, 
don't do this, I think you would have been within the grounds to do to do so. And I, I think that the Barman Declaration in 1934 was a good instance of that, saying saying Christians cannot, <clears throat> you know, they, they cannot raise the flag to Caesar, uh, to Taylor. Um, so I, I think the Barman Declaration is a good, clear, faithful uh, uh, instance of, of, of Christians and churches together saying, no. Now, it's easy to see in hindsight. Sometimes it's harder to see in the moment. I mean, nothing was nearly as clear in 1934 as it is to us now. Like, we look back now on Nazism, and we know exactly what it is. But 1934, they couldn't see that clearly. No way. But, but those brothers were authored that. And I, I, I think, was Bonhoeffer involved in the Barman Declaration? I honestly don't remember. I feel like he might have been. Um, you know, praise God for the prophetic insight they had at that moment to say no. As for resistance, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I do think there's ground for resistance. Um, and I think the grounds are when the government has, has transgressed Genesis 9, 5, and 6. When the government has established or demonstrated a, a pattern of, of shedding the blood of man by man. The boomerang of justice circles around and hits the government. Hitler, as I said yesterday, is not above Genesis 9, 5, and 6. And if Hitler has shut down every means of redress, every means of removing him from office, every, you know, then I, then, then I think you have no choice but to use extraordinary means to remove him. So you don't need to tweet this, please. but. Yeah, I, I, I think there is arguably grounds for, for Bonhoeffer to conspire together with others in, in assassinating Hitler. I, I, I think arguably, I, I don't know that for sure, but given the resources, given the opportunity, uh, I, I think it may just be that Bonhoeffer shows up on Judgment Day and the Lord Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant for doing what you could to obey Genesis 9, 5, and 6 by assassinating through, according to the German state, illegal means. Because the entire German state at that moment was structured around deep, thoroughgoing injustice. And that had to be dealt with. Um, but that that's a that's a I'll get to you in a second, Mark. That 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 doesn't mean every Christian in the German state, the housewife sitting at home in Berlin, was required to do what Bonhoeffer tried to do. Notice what I said. I said, given the means and the resources and the opportunity, I think he may have adequately judged. Yes, now is the time to try to kill Hitler. I have I have I have these knowledge of the people and let's let's give it a go. And I, I think that may have well have been a just act, Mark. So considering what uh, the Nazi regime were doing in um, slaughtering the Jews, among other people, etc., etc., that was visible, that was um, bloodthirsty, that was heinous, and we, and, and I agree with you with regards to Bonhoeffer and, and your perception on that, but how does that relate to our day where we see the vast slaughter of babies in the womb 
endorsed and promoted by government? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I, I do think an element of just war theory becomes pertinent here, right? And one of the crucial criteria of just war theory is that a war is only just insofar as you have a reasonable means of, of winning. If you know you're going to lose a war, um, it's, 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 you know, one significant knock against its ability to be, to be, to be considered a just war. Why is that? Well, you know, you think of something like um, Nat Turner's rebellion uh, against slavery. Well, he went out and he, he, he threw this re rebellion against slavery. And a, as a result, this is pre-Civil War. A, as a result, the white authorities slaughtered hundreds of innocent people. So was greater justice done as a consequence of his rebellion? In fact, even greater injustices were perpetrated. On the one hand, I'm utterly sympathetic with Nat Turner. He was, he was pursuing, he was trying to bring an end to a terrible institution. Yet his attempt to do that, uh, one could count as unreasonable. Because all it did was provoke greater injustices and the slaughter of many more innocent people. Um, so, so, you know, I could decide, no, let's bring it to abortion. I can decide, hey, this is unjust. It, it is. It is unjust. Well, what do I do now? Do I, do I go shoot the president? Do I shoot the, every member of the Supreme Court? It's not going to change anything. All it's going to do is put me in prison, and my, my wife and children are going to are going to suffer, and and Christians are going to have that much more of a bad name, and it's going to make it's going to harden the nation's conscience against it. In, in all likelihood, if I if I just go bananas and start shooting people, it will do nothing except create more injustice. Okay, so so, so do I do I secretly conspire to start a civil war, like one did over slavery? Well, well how's that going to work? You don't have northern states and southern states. You have it spread all throughout. You, um, where are you going to get the guns? Now that the guns of the military are turned against all these Christians taking up guns, they're, they're, they're like home rifles. How's that going to work? <laughs> it's not going to work. There is no reasonable chance of throwing a revolution that overturns the pro-choice regimes that be. It's just it's not going to happen. All I'm going to do is create further injustice. You see? So, it's, and, you know, obviously, Mark, I've, <laughs> I've thought through this one before because I've asked myself your very question. This is, this is a Holocaust. What do we do? And it's like any pragmatic solution I come up with is just going to create more injustice and not solve the problem. So you're left just kind of stuck trying to use civil means to overturn the matter and pray, you know, prayerful means. That's all we got, I think. Now, Mark, if, if you want to devise some way we can Bonhoeffer this one, a lot of us will be all ears. A lot of us will be all ears. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm doubtful of your ability to do that. 
So <laughs> now you might decide as an individual act of civil disobedience, I'm going to refuse to pay my taxes. Okay. Now you have to you have to calculate you have to game that one out as well. Still, okay, that's there's always that option. Anything else, my brothers? Can I ask a question? It's Andy. Okay, well, Andy, we'll take the last questions coming from Andy. In, term, in terms of a government on the basis of Genesis chapter nine, so they've got the responsibility to look after their own people so that they can flourish. Um, in terms of other countries, say like Iraq, for example, or another country where they're not taking care of their people, how how far does that principle from Genesis 9 kind of cross over, do you think? Is the UN... In other words, am I, am I responsible? Are you and I responsible as American and British citizens for the people of Iraq? Is that your question? No, I'm more asking, for, is, is the government of, say, the US or the UK responsible for other nations, do you think, before God, based on Genesis 9? Does that principle... Yeah, yeah, sure. On the, on the whole, no, I don't think so. Uh, on the whole, I, mean, I want to go back to Acts 17, which says he has established boundaries and uh, seasons and boundaries. Right? Th th there is a sense in which God has, divide, through Babel, divided up the globe, ever since Babel, rather, divided up the globe into nations. And yeah. he has established their seasons, their time of duration, and he has established their boundaries. And he has installed governments over each of them. Every authority comes from above. The Iraqi government comes from above. The British government comes from above. The Kurd, Kurdish government. You know, so he has established these different governments. And I think each one is responsible for its own stewardship. I'm responsible for my kids more than I'm responsible for your kids. Now, is there will a time and occasions come in which for some reason life gives me a set of circumstances in which I am responsible for your kids. Well, that's possible, especially if you live down the street from me and you're absent and lo and behold, your kids are on my doorstep and uh, they're saying, yeah, dad, we don't know where dad is. Okay. Well, well, come on inside. You know, so is it possible from, from, from time to time that there may be strange occasions in which the government of, of, of your government or mine feels a certain kind of responsibility for, for a, a foreign nation that has the opportunity to do something to do good. Yeah, I, I'm willing to say that's a, a possibility. I don't want to close that down altogether, but I, I think it's a matter of much circum requires much circumspection and, and, and pause, right? Bef before one jumps in and tries to police the nations. So here I am talking about foreign policy. Thank you. That's helpful. Yep. Um, it's it's uh, what's 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 the phrase? There's a, there's an ethical phrase. Um, moral proximity. I think there's a there's a there's a matter of moral proximity here as we think about Genesis nine five and six, which is I am morally responsible to, to those who are proximate to me, and and I am less morally responsible as you know, kind of rings outward to further and further away from me. I'm less morally responsible. I, I think that is a biblical principle based on uh, affirmations of stewardship.
right? The Lord gives us various stewardships and gives us responsibility over those domains more than he gives us more responsibility over distant from us domains. So there it is. Um, okay, let's, let's go back to the Bible. Hopefully not that we left it, but back to a biblical theology. Um, and we're, we're going we're gonna to. Y'all can still see and hear me, right? Yes. Okay. I'm getting pop-up screens that are asking me to comment as if it was shutting down. Okay, so we are now on uh, lecture five is what is government? Lecture six is what is justice? <laughs> lecture seven, here we go. Uh, the Bible's priest-king storyline from Christ to church. And let me cut and paste this one in there for you. The outline. The Bible, there it is. The Bible's priest king, and if somebody can put it on on um, WhatsApp for the for the brothers in the classroom. The Bible's priest king storyline from Christ to the church. Okay, and you see A, B, C, and D there, and that is what we will talk about now. As soon as I get there in my notes. Okay. Well, we, we, we got through Israel. We got through the Davidic covenant as, as we're going following the storyline. And now, and what, if we were to keep reading in the Bible, we would, we would know that, of course, Israel and its king did not, they were not mannequins. Remember I talked about that? We we're to be mannequins for God's justice and righteousness. We we're to be little patches of fur, I said, for, for uh, what a priest is like and what a king is like. They were to do that. And, of course, the nation as a whole was to act as that little patch of fur they were to act as mannequins for justice god's justice and righteousness self-fulfilling his purposes given to adam of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth with with the glory of god that was adam's job didn't do it so he called out a special people the abrahamic people and said okay you guys do it remember we said the relationship between the common and the special covenants was was command fulfill and god said i will multiply you i will make you fruitful and and then he gave a Mosaic law and a Davidic king to fill it out. What, 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 is, what does walking in the way of God look like and imaging him? Well, it looks like the way of justice and righteousness is specified in the Mosaic covenant, specified in the Davidic covenant. Well, and behold, they did it. They did what Adam did. The whole story of Israel and its kings, you might say, is entitled The Fall Part Two. That's the story of the Old Testament, only the only the drama is now stretched out over a millennium and was set on an international stage. And the lesson, I think, was plain. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot walk in righteousness. We need God himself to fix our guilt before him problem and our obedience problem, both, right? And that brings us to letter A, God promises a new covenant. The prophets, the prophets throughout the Old Testament, praise the Lord, offered a new and eternal covenant that would restore Israel to Adam's office of priest-king one by which God would himself would make provision for forgiveness of sins and enable his people to obey and represent him by playing his law in the hearts. Turn to Ezekiel 36. Brothers, turn to Ezekiel 36. And what we find here is God's promising the exiles that he's personally going to fulfill his Genesis 128 commands. And he would suit them to the office of priest king. Look at verse 10. 
in Ezekiel 36, and I will multiply you. What does that remind you of? Shout it out, somebody. I will multiply you. What, what language is being invoked there? Genesis 12, Abraham. Yes, and even Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, but I will multiply. Okay, so it's, this is taking us all the way back to the garden. Let's keep reading. The cities shall be inhabited, and the wait places rebuilt. Okay, we're, we're a dominion over the earth, and I will multiply on you, man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. What does be fruitful remind you of? Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28. Uh, jump, jump to verse 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And skipping a bit, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. In verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Okay, all this work of salvation going on. Uh, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. I mean, we know this stuff, right? This is gospel stuff. Praise God. I will put my spirit within you, and you cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Verse 30, I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. Oh, that's starting to feel Edenic again to me. That feels fruit trees wow verse 33 i will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt verse verse 35 listen to this and they will say this land that was desolate has become like the garden of eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited and the nations that are left all around you shall know that i am the lord brothers we have not left genesis one behind the special covenants do not leave the Adamic covenant behind. We're fulfilling them right now. And what are we fulfilling them with? We're fulfilling them with all that wonderful content, verses 25 to 27. The new covenant, right? It's hearkening us back to the Garden of Eden. God is going to complete what he started in Eden. Uh, he promises to make these people fruitful and to multiply. And of course, doing this now, however, requires forgiving their sins and not just giving them his law, but granting them his own spirit so that they might walk in his ways. Turn, brothers, to Jeremiah 31. Let's look at the, the other, another new covenant text. We're going to at three texts. Here, here, here's a second one, Jeremiah 31. Uh, he's pointing to this promise. And uh, he fills in one particular detail, however, about them no longer being dependent on the offices of priests or Davidic king. Look there in verse 34. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Will they need priests and kings to mediate for them any longer? No. The two offices of priest and king are going to collapse back upon every covenant member. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Every covenant member will have direct and equal access to the knowledge of God. They will not need covenant mediators. The object lesson the little patch of fur is no longer necessary. 
guys, put your hand on the buffalo. You don't need the little pacifier. <laughs> and 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 this this office to quote our good Presbyterian friend Greg Beal, the office of priest king will be fully democratized once more. Okay. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Turn to uh, Zechariah 6, verse 11. Zechariah 6, verse 11, we, we know from earliest days, God's the Mosaic days, God specifically insisted that the office of priest and king would remain separate. You guys know the story of King Uzziah, for instance. He learned this the hard way. Yet here we have the promise of a figure who's going to combine the roles of priest-king. Verse 11, Zechariah 6, 11, take, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Huh. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear royal honor and he shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne what's going on now this 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 division between priest and king is now done with and and, and it's combining on a single individual uh, so okay what 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 do, we, what do we see in all of this well i think Here's the question for, 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 for you guys. We thought about the relationship between the common covenants and the special covenants. And I said, I said there's, two, there's two ways to conceive it. One is to conceive of a platform, you know, the rainbow. I'm going to preserve you so that you can continue. I'm going to give you government so that you can continue. But then there's another way to conceive the relationship between the common and special covenant, which is command fulfill, right? Old Testament, or, Common covenants command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Uh, the, the, the special covenants fulfill, I will multiply you, I will make you fruitful, and it will be like the Garden of Eden. We thought about the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic Davidic covenant. What was that? I said, well, the Abrahamic covenant is a promise. You'll be like stars in the sky as you walk in the way of justice and righteousness. The Mosaic Davidic Covenant, in turn, administered, implemented those Abrahamic promises. But, of course, that didn't work out. So now we're asking the question, what is the relationship between the Old Covenant, meaning Mosaic Davidic, and the New Covenant being promised in these three passages? Brothers, how would you characterize that relationship? Not a rhetorical question. What is the relationship between the old and the new? Well, the old um, promises what will be fulfilled in Christ. Would that be appropriate to say? It's part of it. But here, I'm, the, the, the emphasis, especially I'm thinking about how the language of Hebrews uses old and new. What's, what's the emphasis on with the old? In Hebrew, we have an emphasis of the whole covenant has an earthly covenant, earthly things that was uh, made on the heavenly model. 
Zest. No, we have type. We have types and shadows in the old. That's true. Yeah. What else? It was passing away. It was never designed to be permanent. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does the old covenant do? It's like a schoolmaster to, to point us to Christ. It shows us our inability to keep the law, really. And it shows us our inability by doing what? Reminding us of our sin. By doing... <laughs> Yes, I'm fishing for something specific. <laughs> and it reminds us of our sin by doing what? Giving us a, a law and sacrifice to atone. Yeah, it gives us the law. It commands. That, that's how it's a schoolmaster. That's how it leads us to Christ. Do this. I can't do it. Right? Think, think, think of Deuteronomy... 28. If you keep this covenant, you will be blessed. Your children will be blessed. Your fruit basket will be full. Peace on your borders. If you don't do this covenant, you'll be invaded and cast out of the land. So the, the relationship that I, that, there's a number of ways we could talk about it. You guys have named several of them. That's all helpful. What, what I'm fishing for here, what I want to emphasize here is it's a relationship between command and fulfill. It is, in that regard, the same as the relationship between the common and the special. The common commands, the special fulfills. But the life of Israel, I said, is the fall part two. They couldn't do it. They were commanded to do something. They couldn't fulfill it. Now God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to fulfill. That's the relationship that I think is crucial for our purposes here. And, and of course, who is it that fulfills it? Well, it's, it's, this, it's this figure who combines the role of king and priest. That really leads us to letter B, Jesus and the church fulfills the whole storyline. Jesus is the one who then fulfills the old covenant by living as the perfect priest and king, entitling him to grant a new covenant. And the Bible has a lot of names for Jesus based on his work. He is the new Adam, he is, you know, Romans 5, he is the seed of Abraham, Galatians 3.16, he is the new Israel, you see that throughout the Gospels, he is David's greater son, I mean, honestly, you, you see all this wonderfully and, and, and gloriously in, in the very first verse of I can get it open. Uh, uh, you, see, you see this gloriously in the first verse of, of Matthew, right? Um, the book of the genealogy, and and you, you you probably learned before that that phrase, the book of genealogy, is 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 taking us back to what's used of Adam in, in Genesis 2-4 and in Genesis 5, the book of the genealogy. What we have here is a, a new Genesis. So that even those very first words in Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, saying new Adam. But then, of course, it goes on, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um. And so gloriously, we have the very first verse of the New Testament, 
the book of the new covenant saying Jesus fulfills Adam's work, Abraham's work, Israel's work, David's work. And how, of course, does Christ do all of these things? Well, he, he did it in his life, his death, his resurrection. In his life, Jesus anticipated a complete dominion over creation and everything from taming wild animals to binding the satanic strongman to walking in perfect submission to the heavenly father. He is the perfect Adam in the garden in his life. In his atoning death, Jesus produced not children of the flesh, but offspring of the promise. Galatians 3.29. He was fruitful and multiplied. Not in the flesh, but by producing offspring of the promise. And of course, in his resurrection, Jesus became the first fruits anticipating the day when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, and will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. Jesus is the Adamic son and priestly king par excellence. He is the Adamic son and the priestly king par excellence his life his death his resurrection he rules on god's behalf as the firstborn of a new creation he visibly reestablished god's kingdom in his own person and like adam he was a representative or every man but this representative didn't bring death he brought life he offered a new covenant in his blood a sacrifice in the temple whereby we are not only forgiven but we're actually united to him so that what he is we are that brings us to letter C, the glory of the new covenant gospel. When I got married, my wife, when I said I do, my student loan debt transferred by imputation to my wife. And my wife's Honda Civic transferred <laughs> by imputation to me. That is what the theologians would call a great exchange. <laughs> By covenantal union, her, my debt became hers. Her assets became mine. And as I, I, I quoted, I think this morning, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, it, it's funny, sometimes N.T. Wright likes to talk about the covenantal nature of our justification as a criticism of active and passive righteousness, especially past active righteousness. And he says it, it, it's covenantal. And it's like, yeah, yeah, Luther understood that. Luther talked that way. Luther used, employed the marriage analogy to describe precisely that transfer of righteousness. Um, so, Tom, go back and go back and read your Luther. Um, the, 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 that's, that, friend, is, is the glory of the gospel. We rise because he's risen. We're declared righteous because he was declared righteous. And here's the kicker. We reign because he reigns. When you are united to Christ by faith, the same office which he holds, the office which he holds falls to you. You become, because of your union with him, a priest king once again. And so that's why Peter can say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just, just think about those four labels. Christians are a new creation race. We are new Adams. We are a democracy of ruling priests, again, like Adam. We are a set-apart nation, new Israel. And we are a people for God. Or as, as many other places in the New Testament put it, we are adopted sons. With Christ declared the firstborn of many brothers. So these people, the church, God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8.29 or Galatians 4.6. Because they are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our, our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. Uh, verse 7 of Galatians 4, no longer are they slaves, but possess the full rights of sons. They are citizens of heaven, Ephesians 2.19. This democracy of kings established in creation begins to be restored. And thus the risen son commissioned these sons, these priest kings, to go into all nations for his purposes, where we will give honor but we will remain unintimidated by the governors of this world since, Matthew 17, 26, the sons are free. So what does God call the church to do? We're kind of sneaking into the mission of the church conversation. Well, you, to foreshadow that just a bit, well, we'll get to it later more at length, but he calls us to be priests and king. He calls us to be sons. He calls us to be restored images. Think the garden. He calls us to rule like God rules, thereby mediating God's glory and righteousness and justice. He calls us to display the character and likeness and image and glory of the Son and the Father in heaven. The Father's a peacemaker, so the church should be peacemakers. The Father loves his enemies. Church, you love your enemies. The Father and Jesus are one. Church, you're to be one. The Father is perfect. Church, you're to be perfect. The Father sent Jesus. Church, I'm sending you. Like Father, like Son like sons. And the church occupies this office corporately, like Israel did, but also every member of the church occupies this office individually, like Adam. There is no separate class of priests or king. Again, the, the, the mannequin, the, the, uh, the uh, patch of fur is done. Every member of your church is both priest and king. Jim, Sue, Fred, Barney, Farhod, Enoch, Isabella, Zoe, all priest kings by virtue of their union with Christ. The gospel gives it to them. You can't take it away from them. It's theirs through the gospel. Not only that, not only does it make us priest kings, the New Testament gives us the work of priest kings. This is letter E now. Is, I, is E included? Ooh, I missed one in the I, I gave you. Yeah, we've got it as D. Okay, well, it's really E. <laughs> what did I miss in the outline I gave you? D, the glory of the new covenant gospel. I said that. I said I think that I'm called I called it C. B, Jesus and the church. I'm, a, God promises a new covenant. You got that. B, Jesus and the church fulfills the new covenant. You got that. No, I didn't. C, oh, you did not? Well, C, the glory of the new covenant gospel. You got that. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I just, I have it wrongly lettered in my notes. D, D, 
the work and ability of priest kings. Sorry about all that. D, the work and ability of priest kings. He gives us the work. So he's made us priest kings and he gives us that work. Christians, the priest kings of the New Testament, must work and watch over something. Priests walked over the temple. What, what, what does the church watch over? What do, what, do we, what do we watch over as priests, guys? Anyone? One another. One another, also called? The church. The church, the temple. We, too, watch over the temple. But what is the temple? The temple is the church. 1 Corinthians 3.16. God specially dwells there. That's the garden. That's the tabernacle. That's the temple. There, he dwells among us like he dwelled in Adam's garden in Israel's temples. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. So in, in encouraging the Corinthians, for instance, in their priestly protective work, Paul charges the members of the Corinthian church to carefully consider with whom they partner. So, so, so listen to 2 Corinthians 6 and how he talks about them. And he uses all this cultic, priestly language. Do not be... No, I don't want to use that translation. Let's use a different translation. Uh, verse 14... Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement is the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He's saying to the Corinthian church, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. You shall become sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, what's crucial for us is, is to recognize that all of that Old Testament temple language is fulfilled. Not in us, it's fulfilled in Christ. And then we hold on to Christ. Right? You don't go straight from Israel to the church, as, as sometimes a, a Presbyterian covenant theology, conceptuality of these things will occur. They, they, they can move a little too quickly from, from Israel to the church. No, we move from Israel to Christ, who's the new Israel, and we hold on to Christ, our new covenant mediator. Okay? Um, and, 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 yeah. Is there an element as well that as priest and kings, we, we, we in a sense, watch over the air, taking um, Genesis, Genesis 1 in terms of being fruitful? Um, There's a sense in which we overlook, oversee the earth? Yeah, like, in a sense, we, we want to be fruitful in the world as, as the church. I guess that comes in the category of evangelism, mission. Well, uh, I'll get to evangelism in a second, but let me just clarify one thing. Adam wasn't given charge over the earth. He was given charge over what? Well, he was told to go out, wasn't he? To be fruitful, to subdue yes. the right, Yes, but right now we're talking about the priestly role, and his priestly role is to be exercised where? The garden. The garden. The garden was not the earth. But he has to push out and expand the boundaries of the garden. Well, that, that's going to get us to the kingly bit in 
two minutes. Okay. <laughs> so we're getting there. Um, hey, look, we're there. This priestly work. <laughs> look at my notes. This priestly work of watching over the church goes hand in hand with the kingly work of expanding and multiplying. It's right here in my notes, I promise. I'm not just making this up. <laughs> Paul, just a few verses earlier, so, so we have that in, in, in 2 Corinthians 6, but just a few verses earlier, of course, he affirms that end of chapter 5, he and the Corinthians were ambassadors for Christ who possessed a ministry of reconciliation, which is to say through evangelism, the members of the Christian Corinthian church were to do what they could do to push back the boundaries of Eden, like Adam in the garden, subduing territory of human hearts on behalf of the great king. Remember what I said yesterday? I said the, the, uh, the priest, back in, when we were discussing Genesis, I said the priest-king role in, in Genesis contains a, a three elements, I said. Number one, a representative image of God element. Number two, an, uh, an outward push, a kingly outward push, subduing territory, and an inward consecrating protecting this this special place in which god dwells and here we are we're seeing it all um the church is to image god right represent him and they do it by protecting what's on the inside that's second corinthians 6 14 and following and by pushing outside the kingly sort of ways ambassadors of, of reconciliation all right so all that to say the new testament gives this work to the church it gives this work to believers and not only does it give them this work, it says they are able to do it. It gives them, that is to say, the power to do it. Israel did not have that power. The church does have that power, that ability. So think again of Jeremiah's promise of a democratized priestly rule. No longer shall one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Well, Matthew 23, verse 8. Matthew 23, verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples not to be called rabbi because there's only one teacher. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 16, Paul says, the church has not been taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 16. 1 John 2, 20. John says the saints don't ha have been anointed and don't need a teacher. In short, the whole New Testament affirms that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, enabling him or her to separate the true gospel from a false gospel, a true knowledge of God from a false gospel of God. So the Apostle John, for instance, tells his readers, ordinary Christians, 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits, which they do by determining if a spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, Peter, 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Peter says he wants to develop a genuine understanding. This is to his readers, ordinary Christians, to quote, so they can quote, guard between false teaching and true. Uh, Galatians 1, Paul's astonished that his readers, ordinary Christians, are listening to a wrong gospel. Don't you guys know this? In other words, brothers, the saints don't need a seminary degree to discern good teaching from bad. They do not need to be ordained. The Spirit of God and Scripture provide all the training, all the ordaining they need, in a sense. I, I, I've not even got to church structure yet, but you, you, can, you can tell I'm a congregationist. 
Small C, not big C. Because I believe in the priesthood of all believers. The priest kingness of all believers, the royal priesthood of all believers. Which is why I wrote a book called Don't Fire Your Church Members Against Presbyterian and Anglicanism. God has given them this job. Jesus has given them this job, and he's made them able to do it. So don't fire them from their jobs. All right. Uh, I finished my lecture. Only three minutes over. Look at that. Let's uh, 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 take a 10-minute break. We'll come back. We'll see if there's any questions from this lecture. And then I'm going to press on and start giving you guys a doctrine of the church. Yeah, I wonder if uh, you have just uh, uh, some uh, rows, uh, a paper maybe, that resume the differences, uh, the degree of discontinuity, and maybe also the continuity elements uh, between Old and New Covenant, because it is really helpful. Please, thank you. Yeah, again, I, I would just point you to the, the books I recommended yesterday, Steve Wollum's Kingdom Through Covenant, Steve Wollum, Peter Gentry's, as well as the, the book of Progressive Covenantalism. Okay. In terms of my own writing on these things, it's, it's kind of the stuff I'm giving to you now. You, you can find an expanded version of what I'm giving you now in my, my book, Don't Fire Your Church Members. Okay. I, I work through this, this biblical theological storyline. That, that's all I got, but uh, yeah. other, others have done a better job of that than I am. Good. I'll see you guys, what, 50 minutes or so? Yeah, for the last 50 minutes of the day. Um, Father, give us strength and help, we ask. Help us to understand according to your word. Uh, I'm trying to decide whether you guys, to give you guys the kind of <clears throat> short version or the longer in-depth version. Um. Well, let me try something kind of in between. Um. The, the, the kind of setup for this lecture, I'll give an illustration to set this lecture up. Uh, a, a friend of mine, his name is Joshua Shee. He, he, was, a, he, was, a, he was born in, he's Chinese, he was born, born in uh, some small town in, in China, but then moved to Shanghai for university. And um, when he was in university in Shanghai, he, he became a Christian. Somebody shared the gospel with him and he, he uh, repented and believed and put his trust in Christ. And um, graduated from university and was working as an engineer there in Shanghai. And he began to share the gospel. He was baptized by a church. It was part of this little house church of about 50 people there in Shanghai. And, and Joshua was an engineer by vocation, but he was, a, he was an avid full-time evangelist at the same time. And uh, just, just sharing the gospel. And, and by God's grace, people started coming to faith through his, his witness. And... Uh, 
he would take them to their past, his pastor, and his pastor would baptize them, but then he, he they wouldn't fit. They couldn't fit, physically fit in that house church. And so, and and if, if you know anything about the underground church in China, it can it can be a little, you know, protective and 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 paranoid that's probably too strong but you know they're they're very suspicious of anybody who's an outsider because of the threat legal threat and uh the state police and so forth and so it's it's you know some churches require kind of a probation period uh before, before they, they bring you in and tell you where the real meeting is anyhow so josh would share the gospel with people and they'd become Christians. so they just started meeting in his with the difficulties of finding churches they just started meeting in his studio apartment there in Shanghai. First, it was three people, then five people, 15, 15 people, 20 people, 30 people. You know, the thing was growing. And there they are sitting on the bed, sitting on the floor, all crammed there in, in, in Joshua's little studio apartment. And uh, at one point, Joshua decided, uh, I, I think I want to move to, to, to Singapore and do a PhD in engineering. So love you guys. Good to see you. You know, catch you later. And they were like, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't go. You're our pastor. He's like, I'm not your pastor. Yes, you're our pastor. Well, you know, you guys need to find a pastor. You guys need to find a church. No, 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 no. This is our church. We, we get together. We read the Bible. You teach from the Bible. We sing songs. We pray. We're a church. You're the pastor. Josh was like, no, I'm, I'm an engineer, and I'm, I'm moving to Singapore. Um, and so that, that, you know, was, was, was a tough process for him to go through, and he stopped, prayed, spent several weeks praying about it, and eventually decided, okay, yes, I'm, 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 I'm abandoning my, my, my career plans for, for engineering. I will stay, and I will, I will pastor these people, and okay, yes, we will become a church. Okay, so I, I give this whole illustration to set up the question, what exactly is it that makes a church a church? Here we are in the church laboratory. We got our beakers and our Bunsen burners, and we're pouring things in little test tubes. What do we, what do we have to pour into what? A poof, voila, it's a church. What does it take? That's, that's the question which, which Joshua's experience in this little studio apartment of Shanghai, I think, poses for us. Uh, for centuries, Protestants have defined the local or, or visible or particular church similarly. Um, let me show you, just get these on the screen for you so that you can read along with me. Uh, there we go. Um, Lutherans say a church is a congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. The Augsburg Confession, congregation of saints, gospel is rightly taught, sacraments rightly. Anglicans, in 39 articles, a congregation of faithful men in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered. Presbyterians and the Westminster Confession say those that profess true religion and their children. Gotta rub it in our faces, don't you, Presbyterians? Lutherans and Anglicans didn't rub it in our face. Presbyterians had. In particular, churches where which are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught, embraced, ordinances administered, published, or performed. Right? Um, 
And then the Baptist definition, I mean, what, what, yeah, again, what sets apart the Presbyterian division? They, they're, they're explicit, where the Lutherans and Anglicans are implicit. They would say a right administration of the ordinances would include children, of course. Presbyterians are explicit on that. Other, otherwise, they're all very similar. And the Baptist one, from the first London Confession, 1644 London Confession, is similar as well, but it, it's got a few other things. What, it, what, it, what does it have? Well, it says a company of visible saints called and separated from the world by the word and the spirit of God to the visible profession of faith. If anything can't do that. The visible profession of faith of the gospel being baptized into the faith and joined to the Lord and each other. Here is a unique phrase by mutual agreement. I love that by mutual agreement. I, I believe in the priesthood of all believers by mutual agreement in the practical enjoyment of the ordinances, okay? And what we have is, you know, if, if I were to try to defend the Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, I'd say the Baptist definition is making explicit what is implicit through the ordinances and, and the others. There is a sense in which uh, a mutual agreement is implied, I would say, in the other states. Someone has to agree for the individuals to receive the ordinances. Nonetheless, it is most explicit in the Baptist conception. We call this a church covenant. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But let's go back to our question. Okay, that, that's, that's how Protestants historically has, has said that the Bible study on Joshua's apartment becomes a church. How do we understand that? When does the Bible study become a church? Well, drawing from these four statements, we would say the Bible study becomes a church when it begins to practice the ordinances as visible signs of their inclusion in the body of Christ, and when they mutually agree to be such a church. To put it another way, we would say the Bible study becomes a church when everyone, by mutual agreement, submits to an accountability structure that names them as members and governs their relationships with one another and with outsiders, which is to say, to become a church is to step into a kind of institutional structure. Might be a weird way of putting it, but, but, but think with me for, it's to step into a church polity. Uh, think with me for a second how that is. Okay, so in, in a Bible study, now I'll just show you the screen again. Don't you see, you, you, you can see it clearly. Um, Oops, wrong one. In a Bible study, individuals are voluntarily gathered together around a common interest. There, there's no requirement for each person to attend. There's no requirement for the behavior of members when together or apart. There's no accountability. It's like, look, you, I understand you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Christians shouldn't do that. But hey, I'm really glad you're here studying the Bible. Right? It's just you come, you don't come. Hey, I haven't seen you in a year. Where you been? Oh, I've been busy. Don't you want to learn God's word? Well, yeah, of course I do. Well, then you should be here. Okay, whatever. I might, I might not come. Which is to say there's no shared identity and ownership that comes with a shared name. You know, we, we, would, we would get to my grandma's house or, I'm sorry, you know, my grandma, you know, and my brothers and sisters would be going somewhere We'd pile out of the family van, and my grandma would always say to me and my brothers and sister, make sure you act like a Lehman. 
my my grandma, for some strange reason, thought being Alina meant something. She should have known better. But you understand what grandma's getting at there, right? Live up to the family name. When we join a church, in, in the Bible study, that's not the case. And when you join a church, the stakes are then raised. We step into this institutional structure. Individuals begin taking responsibility for one another because now we share a common family name, a baptism into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We gather in his name. Make sure you act like a Lehman. Make sure you act like a Christian. Christian. Through baptism and supper, we go on record as affirming one another's professions of faith and membership in God's people. We formally covenant together to help each other per persevere in faith, faithfulness, as long as God keeps us together. We we promise to gather weekly to spur one another onto love and good deeds. We commit to treating each other as brothers and sisters, even members of the body together, such that when one suffers all mourn, one rejoices all celebrate. As I said, our families are now in Christ's name. We've, we've declared ourselves, that is to say, to be an embassy of Christ's kingdom, each member acting as an ambassador. So, so in becoming a church, you are stepping into this accountability institutional covenantal structure. You're stepping into a church polity and one that is not to be treated lightly. That's the difference between my relationship with you guys and my relationship with the members of my own local church, Chevrolet Baptist Church. You guys do not, we share, we believe all the same things, I trust, at least the central things, but you guys don't keep me accountable. I don't keep you accountable. I keep the members of my church accountable. They keep me accountable. That's the difference. There's a new identity involved. There's work in which for which authority is given. Each person needs to ask him or herself, when you move from the Bible study to the church, am I really under, uh, ready to undertake this job, this office? It's easy to be in the Bible study. It's entirely voluntary. But to be in a church, there's work to do. You sure you're ready. And to agree to organize as a church or to join a church is to accept an office of governance, I dare say, among the people of God. It's an ambassadory responsibility among outsiders. It's to say yes to a job offer. And I would say that this office responsibility that we have as members, I'm not talking leadership, I'm just talking members, is, is the public side of following Jesus. It's the, you might say the social form of our repentance, or one form of the social form of our repentance. Forsaking self-rule for the sake of Christ's rule in an individual Christian life shows itself as undertaking church rule. Let me say that again. Forsaking self-rule for the sake of Christ's rule in the individual Christian life shows itself, manifests itself, in part, as undertaking church rule. Okay? Um, I just realized I didn't send you guys my note outline. Let me send it to you right here. This is lecture seven again. What is a church? Okay. Do you all see that? Mm -hmm. You don't see it? Yeah, it's there. Okay, for some strange reason, oh, yeah. it starts with let. It starts with letter G. It shouldn't yeah. start with letter A. 
The first one says traditional Protestant definitions of a church. Okay. Letter A, ignore what's there. Letter A, traditional Protestant definitions of a church. Letter B, why the new covenant was not enough. Letter B, why the new covenant was not enough. Let's, let's, let's jump back to the storyline that we've been telling over the last few courses, last few lectures, briefly. When you consider Israel's failure, remember I said the fall part two, and we considered those new covenant promises, I'll forgive your sins. I'll put my spirit within you. No man shall know his brother, but he shall know the Lord from the least to the greatest. There's still something missing. And what is missing? Well, what's missing is visibility, is public recognition. How do we know who the people of God on earth are? Those new covenant promises, I'll forgive you, I'll put my spirit within you. What is that? That's all invisible. The people of the old covenant had circumcision, Sabbath keeping, eventually a land to identify themselves, to say nothing of familial and ethnic ties. What do the people of the new covenant have? Or to put it another way, how do you exercise border patrol in a kingdom with no borders, no land? For the church to be visible on earth, there needs to be a mechanism for identifying both individual members and corporate embodiments. Right? And so, 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 that is sort of, as it were, left unanswered by the old covenant, new covenant promises in the Old Testament. The universal church, meaning Christians, may be alive and well on planet Earth simply through hearing the gospel. What's more, through hearing the gospel, the believer is at this moment a new creation, born again, a son, a priest king. But the, the believer has a, has a job of priestly ruler, but. How do we know who they are? The universal church needs some way to be publicly recognized, both for the members and for the sake of non-members. How, how does one new covenant member know who the other new covenant members are? How does the unbelieving nations know who and who doesn't belong to these so-called Christians? Uh, how, does the, how does a would-be member know that he's not merely deceiving himself? Do you just rely on your own subjective sense of whether or not you know God? Well, Bob, Bobby Jameson answers these questions for us in his book, Going Public, very succinctly. He says, a church is born when a gospel people form a gospel polity. A church is born when a gospel people form a gospel polity. That's, going, that's, that's from his book, Going Public. Remember what I said about the Bible study stepping in into an institu institutional structure? The, the, the invisible needs to become visible. Okay? Which is to say, the Protestant church is formed in two steps. Because I'm just in a sharing mood, I'm going to share my screen with you again. Step one God the Spirit works through the preached word to give life, faith, and obedience to dead hearts. 
God's spirit accompanies God's preached word, and people hear, trust, repent, and so become the church. God's word creates God's people, but the people remain invisible and unrecognized. Step one. Step two, the people have to organize. Faith has to adopt an order. By mutual agreement, they pick up the ordinances and affirm one another. As you can see on the screen, I say we can, we can draw it like this. Step one, new covenant people. Step two, public recognition. Step one, invisible church. Step two, visible church. Can you guys in the classroom see the screen? Yeah. yeah. Step one, faith. Step two, order or polity. Step one, preaching the gospel. Step two, practicing the ordinances. There you have a Protestant church formed into steps. And the new covenant promises of the Old Testament give us step one. We need to look to our New Testaments to get step two. That brings us to Matthew 16, 18, and 28. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 16. <clears throat> These are, I think, three crucial load-bearing texts of the doctrine of the church. Some authority, this is letter C, what authority does Jesus give to a congregation? If you're outlining, you're taking notes, letter C, what authority does Jesus give to a congregation? Some authority needs to exist for publicly recognizing the people of the new covenant, the invisible universal church. Who is that authority? Is it a prince? Is it a pope? Pastor? Who? You know, the, the, the brother asked earlier, you know, who's to speak to the nations? Exactly. Who has the authority to speak for Christians? Is it the Gospel Coalition? Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man is? And then he asks it again in verse 15, who do you say that I am? And I would say he asked the word who twice. Who do people say? Who do you say? I, I, another way to summarize it is to say he's interested in both a what and a who. What is a right confession? And who of you knows it? What's a right confession? Who of you are true confessors? Simon Peter answers, verse 16, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus affirms Peter's answer in verse 17 on behalf of the Father in heaven. And then he says in verses 18 and 19, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus says he'll build his rock on this, this church on this rock. What's the rock? Well, for many years, Protestants like to say that Peter's confession is the rock for fear of legitimating Roman Catholic arguments that the Pope was the rock, Peter was the rock, and the Pope was the rock. I, I don't think we need to worry about that, honestly. Uh, most evangelical commentators now concede that the most natural reading is to say that Peter is the rock because of Jesus' wordplay. He renames Simon as Peter, Cephas, and then the, refers to this rock, Cepha, um, as, as, as Ed Clowney puts it, we cannot separate Peter from his confession or the confession from Peter. In other words, I, I think we can say that Jesus is going to build his church on this confessor, confessing the right confession. I don't think finally you want to separate confessor and confession here. It's not just Peter. It's, it's Peter confessing the right thing or the Christ. It's both. 
to confess or confessing the right confession. Okay, well then how does Jesus say he's going to build his church? Well, by giving Peter the keys of the kingdom. What do these keys do? They open and shut. Well, early Protestant formulations sometimes use that language. Your ESV study Bible might use that language, but, but strictly speaking, what, what do they do? Well, they bind and loose. Well, what does it mean to bind and loose? Well, let's, hold, let's hold off that question for now. Turn to Matthew 18. We'll find a few more clues for answering that question of binding and loosing. Turn to Matthew 18. Jesus is talking about rescuing straying sheep, so he raises the possibility of a member giving himself over to strife or sin. Verse 15, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, then the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church, the ecclesia. And if you refuse to listen even to the ecclesia, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, somebody outside the country. So, so how many rounds of evaluation and judgment does Jesus envision? Well, he envisions three. So an individual confronts, evaluates, renders judgment. Two or three re repeat the process. And of course, the whole church evaluates and renders judgment. Why does Jesus say to bring two or three others along? Well, he, he's drawing here from Deuteronomy 19. He's borrowing this ancient Jewish courtroom principle. Matters must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses before a charge is considered valid. Jesus wants any acts of judgment to be careful and considered, not mob justice. What's the final court of appeal? It's the ecclesia, it's the church, it's the congregation. Notice there's no mention of elders here or pastors here. Presbyterians and Anglicans like to say that elders and bishops stand in for the church in such decision, but that's just not what the text says. And notice the numeric crescendo. He goes from one to a few to an assembly. An assembly means assembly. So if, if you let a subgroup of the church, one bishop, two or three elders, stand in for the church, you're, you're interrupting Jesus' numeric crescendo. and You're, you're dividing the church, ironically. Some would say, oh, we think he's in. Others would say, no, he's not. That's not the picture Jesus paints. The whole congregation is the final court of appeal for evaluation and judgment. Okay. In verse 18, look at verse 18. It then affirms the basis for this action. By what authority does the church in verse 17 do what it does? Well, verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Where, where we heard this phrase before. Well, this is the same language Jesus used when talking about the keys with Peter. Only this time, he's not just talking to one person. The you in, in verse 18 is plural. Uh, he's giving the church the keys of the kingdom. In, in my neck of the woods, there's, there's people from some of our southern states who would say, y'all, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That allows us to see the plural Greek there. Gathered church is the authority to remove someone from membership, verse 17, because it possesses the keys of binding and loosing in verse 18. Okay? Not the Pope, not the elders, not a general assembly. None of these characters show up in 18, nor do we see them connected to the keys anywhere else. Right? It's the church, the ecclesia. Okay, but let's come back to our question. What does it mean to bind and loose? Well, I think we have several textual clues for answering that. 
I'm going to give you four textual clues. Clue number one, it involves church discipline. It's putting somebody out of the congregation very clearly, right? It's easy to see. Textual clue number two, binding and loosing are opposites. Binding is the opposite of loosing. So if binding and loosing involves putting someone out, it would also seem to include bringing someone in. Observing the text here. Number three, the words are binding and loosing, not opening and shutting. What does it mean to bind and loose? Well, you, you, you bind something with, what does it mean to bind? Well, you bind somebody with rope, with glue, with gravity. Bind somebody with a law or with a covenant. And sure enough, that's how Paul talks about binding in Romans 7. He says a woman remains bound in marriage only as long as her husband is alive. If, if he dies, Paul says, she's no longer bound. Okay? So, so whatever binding and loosing is, it, it's, it's, it's not just opening and shutting, which is like making a way. It's sticky. Right? Sticky. Binds. Looses. A fourth clue, and this, this is a historical background clue. This is not in the text. Binding and loosing is how the rabbis would talk about interpreting Moses' law and then rendering judgment on that law. So they would debate what Moses taught about divorce. Can a man divorce his wife for adultery, for burning his toast, for any other reason? So they would interpret, and then they would make an interpretive judgment on an actual couple. Okay, this man and this woman, this is what's happened. Do we think according to our interpretation of Moses' law, they can divorce? pronounce they would bind them by their interpretation of the law or they would loose them according to and that brings us to a fifth back in the text clue matthew 16 jesus affirms peter's confession he says yes that's that's a right confession so let, let me let me add all these observations textual and one non-textual up and summarize i would say and i'd write this down the authority of the keys to bind and loose is the authority to pronounce heaven's judgments on the what and the who of the gospel. Confessions and confessors. The authority of the keys to bind and loose is the authority to pronounce heaven's judgment on the and the who of the gospel. Confessions and confessors. It's the authority to stand in front of a gospel confessor to consider his or her gospel confession and life and to announce an official judgments on heaven's behalf. Yes, that is the right gospel confession, or it's not. Yes, that is, is a true gospel confessor, or not. And I think that's exactly what we see in Matthew 16 and 18. In 16, Jesus affirms a right confession and confessor. In 18, the church is to unaffirm a gospel confessor because of his or her life. And so does that mean we are making people Christians? I mean, you're binding on earth what's done in heaven. I mean, does that mean you know, you're actually you know, changing a person's state in heaven? Well, no, that, it, that's not what it, no, an ambassador speaks for heaven. Right? It doesn't actually make it happen. It just, it just says, speaks for it. It's a representative function. In that sense, I would say the work is comparable to what a courtroom judge does. Does a judge make the law? 
Well, no, a, a judge just interprets the law. I think this is what the law is saying. Does the judge, when he turns to the, the defendant, make a person actually innocent or guilty? <coughs> well, no. But he does pronounce a judgment based on his interpretation of the law. Guilty, not guilty. He pounds his gavel. And the, the legal system treats the person as such. Right? We understand what, 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 what the, the authority of a judge is. Again, it's not to make the law. It's not to actually make a person innocent or guilty. You can't do that ontologically as such, but he pronounces on behalf of the season. He has that authority, and so it is with key-wielding churches. We, we don't make the gospel what it is. We don't make a person a Christian or not. Rather, we as assembled congregations listen to what a Christian is confessing. We consider their lives, and then we render a judgment on behalf of heaven. Heaven says, they speak for me. We make a public pronouncement, member of the church, not a member. In that sense, when we say a church has declarative authority, we, we, we need to specify, well, what do you mean declarative authority? It, it doesn't merely teach like a law professor teaches about the law in the classroom, right? A law, a law professor can stand up and say, the law says X. And a judge can say, the law says X. But the difference between a law professor's, the law says X, and a judge's saying, the law says X, the very same words, the judge's pronouncement of that binds or looses, like glue, like rope. So a judge's pronouncement of innocence or guilt actually unleashes a series of legal consequences and or benefits. So, so when we say the church has declarative authority, that's true, but we need to specify that a little bit more. It's a binding, loosing declarative, a judge-like authority. Okay. Um, uh, let me let me give you one more metaphor uh, illustration of that. When I when I was uh, a, a junior in in, in uh, uh, college, I, I spent my first study first semester. I told you studying in London, doing the internship in the House of Commons. I then in the spring actually went to Brussels and did a did an internship in the European Parliament. And while I was in Brussels, my passport expired. My U.S. passport expired. And uh, da, 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 there it is. I, I went down to the um, I went down to the uh, embassy, U.S. embassy, in in Brussels, Belgium, and I handed you know the clerk at the desk my passport, and his computer looked at me and I, I don't remember if he gave me a new passport that day or they mailed it to me. I don't remember. But the point is that they, they gave me they gave me an updated renewed passport. Now did the US embassy there in Brussels, Belgium make me a US citizen? Well, no, I was I was a citizen by birth. But did the US embassy there in Brussels, Belgium have uh, an authority to declare me before the nations of the earth a US citizen that I as an individual US citizen don't have? Yes. That, they have that authority. I don't have that authority, though I'm a citizen, right? Well, that's very much like what the authority of a church. We, we don't make Christians. We don't make the gospel, but we have an authority when assembled together to exercise these keys of the kingdom to bind and loose, to say, oh, nations of the earth, that's the true gospel. Oh, nations of the earth, that's a gospel 
confessors. The local church is in that regard um, embassies of the kingdom of heaven. It's not an embassy across geographic space like the U.S. Embassy in Brussels representing the, 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 the nation of the United States. Rather, it is an embassy across eschatological time, come forward in history, speaking for the kingdom of heaven now. And friends, just let's just stop and meditate on this for a second. It's stunning. Jesus did not go to the wise or the powerful or the noble ones to represent his authority on planet Earth. He did not ask the kings or philosophers or poets. He didn't ask the United Nations. He did not ask Oxford University Philosophy Department. He did not ask the U.S. Supreme Court to represent his role. He did not ask the College of Cardinals. Instead, he went to the foolish, the weak, the insignificant, the despised. He went to ordinary Christian folk and church members, these priest kings in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And he gave them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He said, you speak for me. You make royal and priestly judgments on behalf of the Father in heaven. You're the ones who say, that's right, Father in heaven told you that. You tell the nations, that's a right confession. That's a true confessor. How does the invisible become visible? You got to have the keys. Who holds the keys? According to Matthew 18, local church, gathered local church. What are the keys? They are the authority to speak on behalf of heaven, to declare the what and the who of the gospel. That brings us to letter D, what exactly is a church? Does Jesus define it? Well, let's keep reading in Matthew 18, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so I'm staring at this text. And I'm asking myself, why does Jesus say two in verse 19? Why does he say three, two or three? In verse 20, are, are these the same two or three he mentioned back in 16? What's going on here? Well, one, you need at least two people to be a church. Less than two is just not an assembly. That's self-evident. Number two, it does seem like Jesus is invoking the principle he already mentioned in verse 16, that that ancient Jewish law about two or three witnesses. Right? Deuteronomy 19.15. God says that two or three witnesses must agree for a formal charge in the Jewish court to be binding. And that law created a powerful testimony to the truth because it involved those two or three witnesses in bearing testimony, not only to the truth of the matter, but also to the truth of each other's testimony about the truth of the matter. That they agreed with each other. But now Jesus takes that old law and he applies it to a new situation. These two or three gather to testify to Jesus' name, where two or three are gathered in my name. But by testifying to Jesus' name, of course, they also have to testify to their agreement with one another. Okay, so we haven't quite defined a church yet, but I think we, we've got a key ingredient here. We, we have church authority. We, we saw that authority in motion with verse 18 with the keys, but Verses 19 and 20 explain 
what happens for us in 15 here. Look, look at the beginning of 19. Again, I say to you, meaning, okay, let, let me say this again. And then, if two of you on earth agree on anything they ask, first notice that word agree. What's crucial for two or more people to act? An agreement, right? Now, is it merely an agreement over church discipline, as we saw back in verses 15 to 17? Well, no, it's anything they ask. Brothers, right here, we have the white-hot center of church authority. At its heart, church authority is an agreement. The church has to agree, or at least a majority has to agree in order for a church to act and render judgment. Now, I, I want you to think back to the storyline of the priest-king, and I want you to think about Jeremiah's promise for the new covenant, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. Why would it make sense for the heart of church authority to consist of an agreement between believers? Well, John, Jonathan, why, why would you say that's the heart? Well, in a democracy of priest-kings, they have to come to an agreement. Because the new covenant did away with any ruling class of mediators, like an Old Testament priest or king. The king just can't just say, I declare, because all possess equal access. Which means a society of invisible new covenant members can only exist by agreement. Think back to the London Confession, by mutual agreement. So the existence of a church depends upon members of the new covenant affirming one another as believers. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian, let's baptize one another. Implication two, we can call this agreement a covenant. Right? We're, we're, we're taking an oath. This covenant which we see, this agreement which we see, is the legal glue. Jesus takes it from, from, from Deuteronomy 19, this legal glue and he fashions us together as a visible people. And then notice, look at verse 20. He seals the covenant by saying he's there among, among them. Look at verse 20 again. For, okay, here, here's the ground and explanation for the authority just exercised in verses 18 and 94. Where two or three are gathered together in my name. Okay, there's the formal courtroom agreement on who Jesus is. I am there among them. Does that mean he's hovering like a mystical fog in the room? No, it means he identifies his person, his authority with those people, just like God did with the people of Israel through the temple. I am their God, they are my people. He means they act as part of the kingdom or nation. Right? And the, these two or three effectively become a church. And as a church, they are licensed to exercise the keys and officially speak on heaven's behalf. Uh, the, the, the basic unit of kingdom authority on earth is not at the Vatican. It's not at denominational headquarters. It's not at your elders meeting on Thursday nights. It's your gathered church. I'm not saying Matthew 18, 18, or 20. Give us everything we need to have a church. New Testament still says more. But we, we have some of the blueprints here, right? They provide the legal basis or institutional glue, which Jesus does as he borrows Deuteronomy 19. 
uh, the, 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 the authority uh, of uh, kingdom authority on earth is not something smaller than a church, like a small group. That would mean division of the church. What if this small group decided to excommunicate the person, but not this person or this small group? Well, no, they have to agree. The, the, the basic unit of kingdom authority is the local church. So let me, let me just flesh this out for you. Um, imagine um, all of us are on a cruise ship and uh, our cruise ship sinks and uh, we kind of, oh, there's an island. We swim to the island. We crawl up on the island and a bunch of other people on the cruise ship too, including us. And uh, I, I happen to bump into Mark there, Mark Higgins. And we start talking and I've not met him before. <clears throat> I talk about, oh, you know, yeah, this is crazy. This is so hard. But, you know, I trust the Lord and his providence that here we are on this island. It looks like there's coconuts in the trees. There's something to eat. That's great. Maybe one of us can go catch some, you know, boars. And 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 and, and Mark's like, oh, what? you're talking about trusting God. Are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am a Christian. And, uh, oh, he's like, oh, it's great. So you believe Jesus is God. And I say, well, I mean. I think Jesus was like a really, really great teacher. And in fact, I even think he was the greatest creation that God ever did. And at that point, Mark's like, mm, yeah, no. We don't agree on who Jesus is. <clears throat> but then Jason Mariner walks up to Mark. And you guys start talking and you kind of discover you're both looking to the Lord. And so you start to ask each other questions. And Mark says to Jason, oh, are, are you a Christian? And Jason says, yeah, yeah, I am. And so, so Mark says, well, okay, so who's, who's you say Jesus? And, and Jason's like, yo, he's, he's, he's God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. And Mark is like, yeah, man, that's right. I tell you what, Jason, should, 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 we, should we start to like get together? I, I found this waterlogged Bible from, from, from the cruise ship sinking and should we get together every week and, and uh, you know, read it together and, and, and preach it to each other, encourage one another gospel. Hey, I got some coconut milk. You can call it the Lord's Supper. And Jason's like, yeah, let's do it. And at that point, I would say, Mark and Jason, voila, are a church. And at that point, David Constable walks up. He wants to join. You know, they ask him what the gospel is, shares the gospel, and the three of you, the two of you, can bind and loose David when you discover you agree on the gospel. The three of you there on that deserted island, the cruise ship sank, can be a church. Right? You have the authority through that agreement that you guys share with each other, but you don't share with me, the Mormon, you guys can form yourself as a church. Now, obviously, I threw in there the coconut milk, which I really, let's call it grape juice instead. Let's call it wine. <laughs> I was probably should bring in coconut juice, but that's, but that's all you got on the island. What are you going to do? But, yeah, you know, the point is, I threw in the ordinances. You, you, you need the ordinances. I'm kind of getting ahead, getting ahead of myself. But, but what you, what you have with the keys is the basic blueprints here of, of authority. This is how the invisible becomes 
visible. This is how the new co- invisible new covenant people who've heard the gospel, believed, and dwelt by the Spirit recognize one another, and the world recognizes them because, because now Mark, Jason, and David are gathering together on a weekly basis to preach the gospel and, and receive the supper together. And, and, and if somebody else comes along who's not a Christian, they share the gospel with them and they baptize him into the name. And then that, that third, that fourth person can gather in the name because he's been baptized into the name. The four of you together will be a church. Okay. Letter E. Um, where, where do we, where do we, where do we see uh, scripture? Where do we see churches exercising the keys? Well, I, I think, Turn to turn to Matthew eighteen. Or I'm sorry. Turn to First Corinthians five. I, I think very language very reminiscent of of um, Matthew eighteen twenty. Paul confronts adultery in the Christian church. Look at verse four. First Corinthians five verse four. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, what does that remind you of? Anybody? What does that remind you of? When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Matthew eighteen. Yeah, Matthew eighteen twenty. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus. Okay, what is this assembly in the name of the Lord Jesus have? They have, lo and behold, the power of the Lord Jesus. There it is. Is he talking to the elders of the Corinthian church? Is he talking to the bishop of the Corinthian church? No and no. Corinthian church, when you are assembled, not Thursday night at an elders meeting, when you are assembled Corinthian church in the name of the Lord Jesus with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan. Right? And their concern there, obviously, is with the who of the gospel. Who should be called a member and who doesn't? You see the same thing if you you go to 2 Corinthians 2.6, where Paul speaks about restoring a man who's been excommunicated from the church by the majority. A majority voted, somehow came to a knowledge of themselves as the majority, removing this man from the church. While a minority, apparently, did not. Galatians 1, again, the, the, the concern there is with the who of the gospel. Galatians 1, on the other hand, the concerns with the what of the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to him a gospel other than the one I've preached to you, members of Galatian churches, anathema, curse be on him, right? So you, congregation, don't you dare listen to this big shot preacher who shows up this big shot celebrity pastor who went to seminary. If he's preaching you the false gospel, fire him, church. So when should we say a congregation should exercise its authority? That's letter F. Letter F, when should a congregation exercise its authority? There's other passages we can look at, by the way. Letter e. um, we can talk about Acts 6. Talk about it over others. Uh, when should a congregation exercise its authority? Um, a, a friend of mine, his father was a pastor in, in South Carolina, and um, the church had decided to put new curtains in the, in the main hall, the sanctuary. And half the church wanted white, half the church wanted brown, turned into a big fight. Church divided over, literally divided over the color of the curtains in the sanctuary. Is that why Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to the church? I mean, that's crazy, right? Uh, so what this church actually did is they hired a consultant, <laughs> and the consultant came in, and half the church wanted right, white, half the church wanted brown, and the, col- the, the consultant with Solomon-like wisdom said, let them be tan, 
and the people rejoiced <laughs> for the wisdom that God had given to the consultant to do justice. Uh, so, I mean, come on, really? Is this why you're a Congregationalist, Jonathan? So, so churches can fight over colors of curtains? Well, no. It's ridiculous. What has authority been given to the church to do? To make declarations on the what and the who of the gospel. Who of the gospel? Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. The what of the gospel? including, which I, I would say includes choosing your teachers, Galatians 1, right? So the larger principle, I think, working is that priest kings require members to take responsibility for any decision which the nature, integrity, or mission of the church is at stake. The larger principle is that I think the members need to be involved in any decision in which the nature, integrity, or mission of the church is at stake. So these are big decisions. These are significant decisions. This is not the color of the carpet. This is not purchasing a new photocopier. These are decisions in which the nature, the integrity, or the mission of the church as a gospel ministry is at stake. That's when the congregation, I think, from scripture, from these texts, should be involved. So certainly they should be involved in changing, say, the statement of faith. Uh, a friend of mine was in a church in which the, the elders came out and said, we are now, it was a Presbyterian church, we are now an affirming, homosexuality affirming church. And the, the church should have said, really? We are? I don't think so. You're fired. But, but within that system, they didn't have the authority to do that. Um, I, I think on, on a more prosaic note, the Bible says nothing about, say, church budgets. But insofar as a, a church budget shapes the nature of the gospel ministry, it may be wise to obtain, this is, this is an element of prudence, this isn't an absolute biblical writ, but insofar as we're here to protect the gospel ministry, I think an up-down vote on an annual budget is, is probably a wise thing to do, right? And, and, okay, what about smaller expenditures? Well, it, it, depends, on, it depends on the church and its budget. So as you have a 50-member church with a 100-pound Hundred thousand pound budget. Look at me contextualizing. A hundred thousand pound budget. Well, you know, a decision about whether or not to buy a, a thirty thousand pound church van to pick up college students is, is a that's a significant impact on your budget. I can understand why a little church might want to be involved. But now go to a four hundred member church and you got a, a, a million pound budget. Well, a thirty thousand decision. 30,000 pound decision is just, it just doesn't make that much of a, of a difference to your budget, frankly. And so I can understand why the pastors might make that decision or a staff might make that decision, right? So, so some of these questions about what, what does the church decide on are just going to be adjusted from context to context. I want to leave room for that. Nonetheless, the principle that you're going at is, is what the who of the gospel most explicitly and then implicitly, anything that significantly impacts the, the nature, the integrity, the mission of the church, right? So bottom line, you, you want your church involved, I think, in receiving and dismissing or disciplining members. I think you want them involved in elders and deacon selection, and then anything else like a church budget that's, that's big enough that it's gonna impact your ability to be in ministry, okay? That, brothers, is my lecture on what is a church.
you're you're welcome to get up and walk out of the classroom or turn your computer off if, if, if you want to stay on for a couple of minutes to ask questions I'm, I'm happy I won't be offended if you just need to check out but if you want to stick around for a few more minutes and ask questions about this, this very long intense thick lecture I'm, I'm happy to receive questions uh, can I ask a question uh, yes thank yeah. you Kenneth. yeah uh, how big a church can we work with I mean I you know, uh, you mentioned like 400 member church. When you get maybe 500, can, can you operate this sort of what you've just been talking about in terms of the exercise of the keys when you get to a mega sized church? I mean, that's more of an issue in the United States than here, but you, you look at this, you know, how, how at some point you seem to everything starts to get run by staff, by um, in a remote way from the congregation. And how, at what point do you think? That's how big should a yeah, church sure. be? Yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Acts chapter six. Now, in these days, when the numbers of disciples were increasing, about how many disciples do you recall did they have at that point? About three. Hmm. I think they're like a thousand. I think they're. I think they're like five thousand men. Yeah. So ten thousand men and women? I don't know. Man, look at verse two. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said. And you know the rest. So there in Solomon's colonnade, apparently they summoned five to ten thousand people. I don't know how else to read it. There's several texts: Acts two, Acts five, Acts six, where you see the whole church in Jerusalem gathering. Right. So I've been a member of a church with a thousand people. I was one of twenty-five elders in a, in a thousand-member church, and uh, we we pulled it off. Right, we had members meetings. We had the members decide on everybody we received. We had all the members were decide on issues of discipline. We we kept it at one gathering. We didn't go to multi-service. We stayed or multi-site. We don't believe in that. We believe ecclesia means ecclesia means ecclesia, right? So we we uh, gathered every week in the morning and the evening as a church, and then uh, six times a year we we gathered for these quote-unquote members meetings, which we, as I said, made these kinds of decisions. Now, typically, all not all, not all a thousand would show up in the members meetings. Very often, you know, a mom or a dad would go home with the kids or, you know, people, people. So we, we would typically have six or seven hundred there. And the elders would work very hard beforehand to figure out how to lead the church through these some of these tougher decisions, especially discipline decisions. Um, but yeah, we could do it. The bigger it gets, the harder it gets, no doubt. But if the Lord blesses you with those numbers, I, I, I trust will also bless you with ways to figure out how to do it. Inevitably, a bit on, I don't know, take new members. If you have quite a few people coming to the church, not everybody's going to know them to the degree, or do you have them interviewed in the service, in the church meeting, or do people yeah, do sure. that sort of thing? I mean, there are ways to do that, I suppose, ways to get around yeah. Yeah, sure. No, not everybody. Views it. The, the way we would do it, we do it now at my smaller church plant, and the way we did it when I was at Capital Baptist, and they still do it, with about a thousand people, is uh, <clears throat> I as an elder would sit down with a member. I would, I would do it at a membership interview, in which I ask them their testimony, I ask them the gospel, I ask them they've been divorced, I ask them they've been disciplined, they've been baptized. So I'll ask them all of these kinds of questions in a membership interview. I always have another person sitting there with me. So always an elder would be leading on the interview. I would take, I'd write down my notes. I take those notes to the full elders, all 25, 27 of us. I would say, you know, they would all read all my notes before the meeting. 
the testimony, which I would write up. They'd ask me questions. It says he was baptized uh, in a swimming pool. What's going on there with, you know, his buddies back in the college football team? Is this really a baptism? You know, so he'd have those kinds of fun questions. Um, uh, says he was sprinkled in an Anglican church. Is that, do we count that? <laughs> so we, we have these kind of conversations. And then suppose we all affirm, okay, then I would take, I would be the one as the one who interviewed Joe. I would go before the whole church in one of these members meetings. And I would give the church a minute-long version of Joe's testimony. Joe grew up in a Christian home. Uh, he, he remembers a time when his mother shared the gospel with him at age 10. And he'd been hearing it all his life. But at age 10, he, he, he recognized that he was a sinner. He repented and believed. And, um, and after that, just as I, as I asked the question, it was clear his, his life changed, right? He kind of had a new sort of relationship with his brothers and sisters at that point. He, he began to stick up for Jesus at the local school. And uh, he's been walking in faithful ever in a sense. And we as the elders are happy to recommend Joe to you as a member. Any questions? Congregate. And by the way, I have a picture of Joe up on the, the screen. And uh, oh, where does Joe work? Oh, he works in the Department of Defense. Um, <clears throat> anybody know this about, you know, some people might ask a couple of questions. And then I'm all in favor, say aye, all opposed, say nay. And then another elder would get up and share the person he had interviewed. And basically, that's how it would go. Thank you. But then, yeah, no, certainly you don't know everybody. It's like a spider web. I'm connected to a few things. They're connected to a few things. They're connected to a few things. But hopefully the whole the whole thing hangs together. You touch one part, the whole thing vibrates, right? That, that's I think when you get into a larger church, that's what the fellowship is like. Even as a pastor, I, I didn't know all a thousand people, but I knew my 50 or 100. Right between the twenty-five of us, we we we, we knew the church by name. Other questions? Is there any appeal system? Say that again. Is there any appeal system? What do you church? mean by appeal system? What do you well, mean by appeal system? Well, the sister a decision made you think is wrong. The church has made wrong decisions, and, and different denominations do it differently, I suppose, but. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean the the appeal. I mean, let's. I mean, do you mean am I an elder or am I a member? Well, I suppose if you're the pastor and you've been chucked out, <laughs> now, that's called a vote of no confidence, right? Um, depending on the size of the issue, uh, the the appeal would be simply to be to, to talk to fellow members or talk to the elders and 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 quote unquote appeal to them, right, and try to persuade them. Look, I, I really think. Now the way the way it works at, in most of if it's a membership decision those are oh I've never known a membership decision to be contested a discipline or a resignation question now those can be contested especially discipline right uh, and the way it typically works is we uh, we will announce so we have these regularly scheduled members meetings six times a year so I, congregation uh, Joe has left his wife. And Matthew 18 says to tell it to the church. And so we're here telling it to you and asking you to get involved. If, if you know Joe and um, have a relationship with him, we, 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 as, we as the elders have been working with Joe for a while and he's not responsive. He's left his wife for this other woman. And he's not returning. And uh, if you have a relationship with Joe, could you reach out to him, please? If you don't know Joe, it's probably tough to make a relationship with him now, but do be praying for him. 
And uh, if nothing changes between now and the next regularly scheduled meeting two months from now, the elders will return to you and recommend uh, Joe's removal as, a, as an act of discipline, right? And it be in those in ensuing two months, David, that members have the opportunity to say, look, you guys got this all wrong. You, you completely botched this one. Let, let me try to explain to you. Uh, or, or let's suppose it's an elder nomination. Um, I gave you a really clear example. Guys left his wife. Nobody's going to appeal that. But, but in elder nominations, we would get appeals. So uh, we're, 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 uh, we're nominating Mark Higgins, the, the, our, our, our desert island refugee, <laughs> as an elder. And um, uh, he's, you guys know him. He's been around here for a few years since he got off the island. And uh, he's, he's commended himself among you and his ministry among you. We as an elders would like to recommend Mark to you as, as an elder. So over the next two months, if you have any questions or if you, for some reason you think you're going to vote no on Mark, please come talk to us. Um, and uh, so over those new next two months, um, at that point, Jason comes to me and says, look, I spent a lot of time with Mark on, on, on the desert island. And, you know, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but he doesn't. And I'd really encourage the elders to, to reconsider. Um, so it'd be in that two month period where the, the church comes to us as elders and as it were, appeals. If the decision is made, I mean, at that point, you really don't have much of a choice but to leave the church or decide you can submit and live to it with it. And some things you should submit to and live with and some things you should not. Thank you. Last question. Um, obviously in different churches, some are more elder-led and some are more congregation-led. Um, what would you say are the biblical um, boundaries and parameters at each end of the spectrum? I, I guess I can see the elder-led end of the spectrum more clearly based on what you've said about what members should be involved in. Um, but when do we get to a point where we've gone too far on the congregational-led side of the spectrum? Well, uh, the, the, the answer to that really depends on another lecture, which I've not yet given, which is, okay, so what is elder authority? We've not talked about that. What is elder authority, and how does elder authority relate to congregational authority? How do I, on the one hand, as a priest keys exercise guardianship uh, over the who and the what of the gospel, and at the same time, follow Hebrews 13, 17, which says, submit to your leaders, right? How do I do both? That's tough. Um, and Presbyterians and, and Baptists come up with different answers to, to that question. But, you know, the challenge here is how do I respect both sets of texts and not just subvert myself to one set or the other set? I think we see an answer of something like that in 1 Corinthians 5 again. If you were to look at verse 3, Paul would say, Paul says, I have already passed judgment on the one who did this thing. So Paul knows exactly what he thinks of this man who needs to be executed. He says, hand him over. Then, interestingly, look down at verse 12, he says, now, there's those inside the church whom you are to judge. So the mere fact, Paul acting in an elder-like capacity here, the mere fact that Paul has passed judgment doesn't mean the deed is done. The church is still supposed to do it. So that's what, that's, that, that I think is the balance right there. The elders show up and they say, we've passed judgment. We think you need to excommunicate Joe, or we think you need to receive Mark as an elder. Or we think that David should be a member, or we think that this is this is a budget. That's the way of the way that we'd like to go. And at that point, 
the, uh, the church is to exercise its own judgment, but I think they should do so ordinarily in submission to the elders. You really are to submit to the elders, Hebrews 13, 17, right? They have oversight. When do you not? Well, you, you don't when either you think they're sinning, when you think they're doing something in harm of the church. In other words, the church is going to vote against the elders only, I think, pretty rarely. It's, it's a kind of emergency break. How often do you use your emergency break? In other words, back to your spectrum question, congregationalism is not democracy. It is not democracy. In a democracy, the government represents, in some sense, the will of the people, the agents of the people to carry out the people's will, in certain respect. That is not democracy. That is not congregationalism. Congregationalism, uh, according to the Cambridge platform of 1630-something, says part monarchy, Jesus in his book, part oligarchy, the elders, part democracy, the congregation. If you're going to analogize it to civil government, it's a weird blend, right? So, so there is a sense of, you know, the, the congressmen and senators and parliamentarians never come out and say to the, you know, the people of Britain or the U.S., submit. This is the way, this is the judgment you should have. They, they don't have that job. But in a church, they do. In a church, the elders say, well, we think you should excommunicate Joe, right? Uh, so the congregation has a real authority, but I think they're to use that authority sparingly over matters of the who and the what of the gospel and, and, and seldom in contradiction to the elders assuming you have faithful elders so all that to say i am an elder-led congregationalist i'm not an elder rule guy i don't think the elders rule i think the congregation has final rule but i am an elder-led congregationalist i want to respect both streams of biblical text the congregational streams and the elder leadership stream of biblical texts. And yes, it's easy to err in one direction or the other, and we're always trying to strike the balance wisely and biblically. Mark Higgins, Island Survivor. Yeah, thanks. Um, what would you do, or would you say that this shouldn't happen, but it will, when an eldership is split in their decision on a way to go? Is that time when... It really, you just need to take more time and dig into scripture, or is it the time when you take it to the congregation? Or it, it there could be a bit of both. A bit of both. It, it depends, right? It depends on what, what the question is. Like, does the decision have to be made? Um, uh, can you wait? Sometimes no. So, for instance, I remember one occasion in which um, uh, we had disciplined a guy from our church for public drunkenness. And we didn't tell the church this, but there was also kind of a, I don't know, I call it a full-on abuse of his wife, but he was, he was an alcoholic and there'd been, there'd been an episode of like him kicking his wife or something like that. We didn't tell the church that part. We just, we excommunicated him for public drunkenness. And then, so he, he uh, got into Alcoholics Anonymous. We encouraged him to do a Christian program, but he, but he did alcohol. Okay, well, that's better than nothing, I suppose. And he spent six, seven, eight, nine months in Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking. And uh, then came to us and said, look, and I've, I've been dry for six months. I'd, I'd like to rejoin the church. And he hadn't yet moved in back in with his wife. And we said, move back in with your wife. He said, 
know um, my my uh, my advisor, my counselor at AA says that'll interrupt my process of recovery. So no. And uh, he, in general, was still pretty prickly with us and kind of obstinate with us. So he'd been dry. He'd repented of public drunkenness and drunkenness. But there was still just a hard attitude in him. And again, a refusal to resume relations with his wife. <clears throat> and um, so <clears throat> the elders were really divided over this. And the vote came. <coughs> Sorry. The vote, as I recall, was like seven to six. Seven for not receiving them and six for receiving him. Oh, we felt the weight of that, every one of us, right? But we just had to go with the seven because we either had to bring him in or not. And right now, the majority is saying, don't bring him in. The six are just going to trust the providence of God through the seven. And that's what happened. And by God's grace, actually, over time, sadly, it was, it was proven that the seven were right with kind of further stuff from him. Now, there's other things where, yeah, you might just decide this is the high, the stakes are high on this. We, we don't need, you know, maybe you're trying to decide whether or not to purchase a, 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 a parsonage, make a big financial expenditure. You know, so you don't have to make the decision. And let's suppose you have that eight, seven split. <clears throat> yeah, you might just like, hey, guys, why, why don't we just pause on this a while? Let's see what, see if we can get any more clarity on this. You can decide to do that. So bottom line, it depends. Bottom line, I do think there is a place for elders to learn to submit to one another. If you cannot submit to other elders, you should not be an elder. You can't. You can't teach people how to submit to elders if you can't submit to the elders. So I recently in my church lost a, a fairly significant vote uh, among the other elders and uh, pertaining to the age of baptism. Uh, the, the elders wanted to, to start baptizing younger ages that I personally am comfortable with, not by dramatic margins, but a little younger than I wanted to go. I argued for an older age. The majority argued for a younger age. It was a four to two vote. And uh, I, I think it was right for me to submit to them in that decision. Now, if they'd gone dramatically lower, and that's just, I just feel like this is crazy foolish, I, I would have had to leave the church. That possibility is open to me as well. Uh, but, but it wasn't, it was, it was close enough that I felt like the need to, and obviously I was encouraged a couple of members, was, you know, we, we talked through those differences. Typically we don't talk through differences among elders. We don't typically say, well, I didn't vote with them. I can't believe those turkeys did that. Yeah, I, I'm with you. What do those guys think? You don't do that. Usually when you go before the church, you go unified, right? Occasionally, like on this one, we decided to be public with our disagreements. We thought it actually might serve the church to say this 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 new age of elder age of baptism document that we're putting forward is a bit of a compromised document. Now Jonathan wished the ages was a little lower. John might have even got a little younger. This is a compromised document. We all affirm every word in the document. We think it's a good document. And so we we, we encourage you guys to, to to submit to this document and go with us on this. And I, I remember hearing from people later, especially since I'm kind of like the nine marks guy, right? I'm known for writing on the church and so forth in my church. The fact that I submitted to the majority's will was actually really helpful to people. Uh, and they were encouraged by that. So I think we as elders have the opportunity to demonstrate that kind of submission to one another too, which is crucial in being a healthy church. Hmm. 
as the numbers on the screen slowly drop off. <laughs> Anything else? Anything else? Jonathan, I, I have a question, um, but I suspect you're probably going to pick up on this tomorrow. So feel free to say, can we part that and we'll come back to it tomorrow. Um, yep. I was very struck the other day when you talked about um, the, the brother who planted a church in um, Dubai and the difference of opinion that you and he had over whether it would be appropriate in that context to admit Peter Baptist to membership in the church. Oh, and, yeah, right. And, and the way you said, um, I'm not sure that Jesus has given me the authority to allow that. That really challenged me and made me sort of go back and, and, and think um, about that issue. And, and in the context of that, can I just sort of say thank you to you and to all the work that you and Nine Marks more broadly have done in, in helping people like me to think through those issues. Um, I guess my question is, off the back of what you've been saying today about the authority of the church to loosen to bind, um, it seems to me from what you're saying that the, that decision is made on the basis of who confesses Christ Jesus as Lord and is orthodox at that level. And so I sort of want to, I hope you don't find it rude or cheeky, but I sort of want to turn that question back on you and say, what makes you think Jesus has given you the authority to lose someone on the basis of who is otherwise professing Christ as Lord, etc., on the basis that they have a different understanding of whether they are baptized or not? Yeah. Uh, brother, right there, that's the heart of the argument. Right there. Right? So on the one hand, I, I've been watching this, this argument transpire for, for, for years now. And, and I remember when I first encountered it, it was, it was between Mark Dever and John Piper. And uh, Mark Dever would say, I was just mimicking Mark, by the way. I said, I don't have the authority. Mark would say, I, I just don't have the authority to be baptized. And, and, and John, John would say, essentially, John Piper would say, well, how, can, how do you have the authority to refuse Christians into your church? Or as, as, as she put it as well at the time, Mark, how could I not let Sinclair Ferguson and Jonathan Edwards into my church? <laughs> <laughs> And so, so, and so, and so, brother, you, yeah, you've just, you've just given me that. That's the tension of the art because Jesus requires two things, doesn't he? Gospel, faith, and baptism. Both. Mm. Repent. What must we do to be saved? They say to Peter in Acts 2 37 38. What must we do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized. And they, were baptized that number, and 3,000 were baptized that day and added to their number. So who's right? Is Mark right saying, I don't have the authority to baptize? Or John Piper, John Piper and you, saying, do I have the authority not to accept believers? Um, and I just it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? It is really a tough one. Maybe it's not tough in your minds. It's tough in my mind. I think it's incredibly tough, and I think... If you, if you don't mind me coming back a second. I think it's incredibly no, tough. Please. And, and I feel like, actually, as Baptists, 
Um, I don't think this is our fault. I think I think Theo Baptist have done this to us, but they've kind of put us in a position where, where we're required to be inconsistent at some point. So I because either we're going to be inconsistent in um, who we let into our church because we're going to say, well, I, I don't think you're baptized, but I do think you're a believer, and so therefore I feel like I I'm going to let. I have to sort of admit you into the church. Or else do you not end up being inconsistent at the point of discipline, where when disciplining someone, you're saying, well, I'm poor. And again, with a, with a strict table, a closed table, we want to say, you can't, you can't take the supper because you're not baptised. Um, but then on the other hand, we say, when we withhold the supper from somebody, we're saying, we don't think your profession of faith is credible. And so is that something that we want to say to a, a Peter Baptist brother? So I, I feel like whatever we do, we're going to be inconsistent at some point. It's just a question of where are we going to be inconsistent? Yeah. Well, better inconsistent than being disobedient, right? By baptizing babies, first of all, or telling people they must receive somebody who's not been baptized. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I see it as an inconsistency because I still can say, hey, look, I'm happy to affirm you as a believer and I'm, I'll even help you get a church going. Join this Presbyterian church. Admittedly, that's going to be harder in some locations than others. It's easy for me to say in Washington, D.C., we've got plenty of healthy Presbyterian churches. A little harder in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, or maybe you know, certain rural towns in both of our countries. Um, and to thread the needle even slightly a little bit more, I'm even happy to allow a visiting Presbyterian shows up at my church. You know, Sinclair Ferguson visits my church and I see him reach into the plate to grab that little communion wafer and take that little cup of, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to tell him, no, 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 you can't do that. Sinclair, not been baptized as a believer. Now, if he began to turn, attend my church on a regular basis, kind of make it his home, and then I would say, listen, you need to be baptized, or listen, why don't you find a Presbyterian church to join? Um, so, yeah, I, I, unfortunately, doctrinal error and doctrinal disagreement, brother, to just, but to just kind of go straight into your, your, your question, it creates tensions between believers. I, I don't know how we can get away from that creates opportunities where we where we disagree and where where there is what might appear as a inconsistency uh, but better an inconsistency I think than an act of disobedience or an act of usurping the keys by saying no no you I know Jesus said you had to be baptized but it's okay if you're not baptized so, brothers, I'm, I'm afraid I can't give you any more clarity or comfort to your souls and the conflicts you presently feel on that issue than that. That is probably the best I can do on that one, and it is unsatisfying, is it not? So let me, let me close the few of us remaining, the few, party few remaining in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, which is perspicuous, which is clear, 
even if we make it unclear in our sin and in our ignorance. Thank you for teachers who help us to understand it, but thank you most of all, Holy Spirit, who gives us an understanding of you and the knowledge of you through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We give you praise for all of that. Help us to leave your churches wisely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Brothers, we'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 1020. Thank you very much. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. All right. Thank you.